Well, it is wonderful to be back. And uh, I recognize some familiar faces. That's always lovely. And quite a few faces I don't know yet, which is also lovely. We have a very spacious day ahead of us. And I hope that the pace of the day will give you enough space, enough room, Raum, one of Rilke's favorite words, a place to grow, a place to expand, a place to, to question, to probe, to wonder. To wonder. And that's our theme for the day, the sense of wonder. And uh, we'll do it primarily through poems. You should have on your, should have found on your chair a, a collection of poems we'll be looking at, maybe not all of them but probably most of them this, this morning and this afternoon. But I want to think with you at the very beginning about what wonder is and why it's so important. And as Kate said, so it's needed in every time, but I suspect in these times, at least in my own country, where the political climate has so, been so poisoned and so sickened over the last several years, that maintaining a sense of sanity is task enough, but we're going to go a step further, and we're, we're looking to move into that realm, that adventurous realm, where we can open our hearts and our minds to the newness of the world, to what's undiscovered in the world, in your world, in our world. And so I'd like to think at the very beginning about what wonder is. And if you know a little bit about the word, it comes from an old English word, wunder, the marvelous thing, a miracle, an object of astonishment. From ancient Germanic and Old Saxon and Middle Dutch words, wonder, wunder, wunder. And in Middle English, apparently, according to the dictionary, that also came to mean the emotion associated with such a sight. And that's really how the word began to change from miracle to the taking in of the new, the taking in, the opening ourselves to the new. It's really quite a remarkable word, Wunder. And in German, if you know a little German, some of you, I'm sure, do. I know a few of you do. Wunde, a wound has a similar root. And there's something about what a wound is. It opens something, right? It, it opens us to something. It exposes us in ways we probably weren't ready to be exposed to, a wound. But it's one of those words that has deep roots in the Christian spiritual tradition, particularly from the Song of Songs. I am vulnerata zoom. I am wounded with love. Do you know that text from the song? It comes three times in the Song of Songs. Probably not a text that everybody has read recently, I don't know. The Song of Songs in the Old Testament? Give me a nod here, thank you. Um, up until a few years ago, it was never included in the lections in the church's year. When I started my work on the Song of Songs, on medieval commentaries, it never appeared in the whole course of a year. It was never read in churches. It was perhaps too risque, or more probably, it simply has no mention of God. It's one of the two books in the Bible where God doesn't even make a side appearance. It's a love story between these two voices. And some Hebrew scholars have suggested it might have been written by a woman. We don't really know. 
We don't know, or parts of it. Clearly the voice of the bride and the voice of the bridegroom are very distinctive voices. And of course the church in its gathering wisdom saw this as an allegory, as did the synagogue, of God's relationship with God's people. So the bridegroom for Christians was Christ. The bridegroom for Jews was simply the interlocutor God. And we ourselves are the ones who were, as the text puts it several times, wounded with love. Wounded with love. I thought of that as a title for today, but I think there would have been a few people who'd say, I'm not sure I want to get on the tube for that. I've had enough wounds of love. I don't need a day of that. But of course, it's not meant to be a kind of anguished wound of love, or perhaps a little bit of that. It's the longing love that comes through in the Song of Songs. And I hope this day will be a day when we can stretch our own sense of longing, of what longing really is, how we expand ourselves inside. Now, it's a kind of a remarkable thing, but neuroscience has taught us so much in the last 30 or 40 years about how the brain works, and this is not going to be a day on brain science, but there's a part of the brain here. Oh, this doesn't show up on the screen. This part. This is the hippocampus. It's in sort of two tubes that circle around the deepest part of the brain, the oldest part of the brain, the hippocampus. And it's the part of the brain where certain very important things happen. The fight-flight activity happens there, which is absolutely necessary for human survival. It's probably why it's one of the oldest parts of the brain, because that was, was and is essential to survive in this world. But more than that, it's where fear, where desire, and where curiosity seem to be lodged in the brain. And importantly, it's the part of the brain that translates new experiences into long-term memories. We know that because people who've had 30 or 40 years ago, they began experimenting with people with severe cases of epilepsy, and they took out the hippocampus, which, which cured the, the epilepsy. But it left them unable to remember anything new, which, of course, is very disturbing. So nothing that you saw that was new, it, it, you couldn't bring that new stimulus or stimuli up into the, the cerebrum of the brain, into that place where things are lodged. So it's a very important part of the brain. And brain scientists will tell us that, among other things, it's how we stay young. It has something to do with staying young. The elasticity of the brain has much to do with this part of its ancient form. Because learning a new language, seeing new things, all of these activities activate the hippocampus. And they keep us nimble. They keep us quick. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, before we get to the poems for this morning, comes, it's found in all three of the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke almost unchanged, which is a little unusual. Usually, assuming that Mark is the oldest gospel, Matthew and Luke add their own spins. And Matthew adds one word different. But otherwise, the stories are essentially the same. It's a little story 
where Jesus is busy being Jesus, busy being a teacher and a healer, and apparently it's in the middle of the gospel in all three cases, the middle of the story. He's gathering large crowds as he comes into new villages because the word about this wandering preacher, this healer, goes ahead of him. And along the road, as he's going toward Jerusalem, as Matthew and Luke put it, a crowd of people come to him with their children. Matthew adds, with infants, with babies, so that they might, he might lay hands on them. And do you remember what the, 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 the disciples do in all three cases? They rebuke the people. Get away, get away. This is a very important person. He's here to do God's work. He's here to do kingdom work. He's here to proclaim the kingdom of God. Children have nothing to do with this. Please, stand back. And in all three cases, Jesus then rebukes the rebukers and turns to them and says, no, let the children come to me, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you do not accept the kingdom of God as a child, you will never enter into it. It's a remarkable little story. And it's one that I think strikes a chord with all of us when we realize how important childhood is. I saw that so profoundly with my, with my own father when I had my children and I saw him come alive with them in a way he probably was with me as a child, but I don't really remember it very clearly. You know what it's like to get down on your hands and knees with a two-year-old and look them eye to, the, eye to eye and enter into their silly games and their wonderful speech patterns. And they're discovering the world for the first time. And there's something marvelous about being with anyone who's discovering the world for the first time. I mean, I, I, I experienced that often with my own students in Germany because I'm fluent in German, but it, it wasn't a childhood language. I learned it as a young person. But I still find the language so remarkable and interesting. The words, the way words are built in German, you just can't do it in English that way. You can make things up in German. And I'll sometimes pause in a lecture and say, that word, bewunderung, just as an example, to be astonished by something. That's an amazing word. Let's think about that word together. They look at me like I have you know, seven heads. Uh, or no head. But in point of fact, the, the way that children encounter things is like that. They hear something for the first time, they see something for the first time, and they're dumbstruck. That wonderful word in English. They're struck silent. Or they begin chattering about it. What is that? Why is that? Look at that. Look at that. And I suspect that if if we had been walking across this square this morning with a little child, it would have taken a lot longer to get into the church than it did with all of us 
with our goal-oriented walk to get here in time, right? Children teach us a different way of being. And I think that little story in the Gospels, in all three of the first Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, is a really important one, and one that we forget to our peril. Thinking that theology, the language about God, is a very sophisticated and complicated thing. And of course, it has become that. And I produce theology in that way, I suppose, so I can't be critical of it. But at the heart of it, entering the kingdom of God is not becoming a theologian. It's seeing the world with the eyes of children. And what would that look like? What, what are children how, how children, how do children look at the world? What would you say? What's important? What do you notice? They're curious. They have big curiosity because everything is a first for them, right? Goodness, look at all these pictures. Where do they come from? Look at that. Whatever. What else with children? Their excitement. They're, they're, they're liable to be excited. But we learn to kind of tone that down because it's just not dignified to be too excited. What else about children? They, they pick up leaves. And they look at the leaves, and they throw the leaves around. They bring them inside. Yeah. They look at little things. Well, spontaneous. spontaneous. Something else here? They jump in puddles. They jump in puddles, especially when they have dry clothes on, and their mother has just said, don't jump in the puddle. Boom. I want to. It's there, right? What else in the back? They're consumed by, they're drawn into the moment. A child can, can be drawn into something so attentively, so expectantly, so surprised they are, right? It's a wonderful thing. And it, it keeps us young to be around young children because it helps us remember that we can be surprised, that we can discover the world again for the first time. Meeting Jesus again for the first time, great title to a book meeting the world, entering the kingdom of God again for the first time. And I suspect that's exactly what Jesus meant. These children are not here for an argument. They're not ready to debate anything. They aren't contentious. They're not worried about what might happen tomorrow because they don't really have a sense of tomorrow. That's another thing. We didn't mention that. But children don't live in tomorrows. They don't know what tomorrow would be. Little children have only the moment. Somebody said that. They have only the moment. And actually, that's all there is. Did you realize that? That's all we have. Time is something we've constructed. When St. Augustine was asked what time is, he records this in his confessions. He says, well, I know exactly what time is until you ask me, and then I don't have any idea. But I do know this. He said, the past is the present that is no more, and the future is the present that is not yet. All we have is the present moment. That's all we have. And for Augustine, God is present in every moment, past, present, and future at once. It's kind of an amazing thought. So why worry about tomorrow? Maybe, maybe Jesus had some sense of what Augustine was onto later. Why worry about tomorrow? Why be anxious? One of the most compelling and little attended admonitions in the New Testament. 
Don't be anxious. Oh my gosh, please. My anxiety is my life. I need my anxiety. I am so worried about tomorrow for good reason, because there's a diagnosis, because a friend is in trouble, because a thousand reasons why we worry about tomorrow. And they're all obvious reasons and, and not unimportant reasons. But I think Jesus was getting at something deeper than that. Pay attention. Live in the moment. This is the kingdom of God. It's right here. It's not tomorrow. And it's not yesterday. It's right here now before us. And that's what we're going to be thinking about all day. What a wonderful thing that we have this chance. Come on in. So we're going to start with a poem by this marvelous woman, Hilda Domine. It's the first one in the handout. And it's um, in English. On Look at those eyes. She lived to 97, by the way. And she, she only began writing poetry in her, let's see, 40s. In her, 19, in her 40th, 45th year, I think, her, her first book was published. She was a, a Jewish woman, a girl who grew up in the great city of Cologne, just down the road from where I live in Germany, the Rhine, the Lower Rhine, that is the Northern Rhine, lower in the land. She left Germany when the Nazis came to power because she sensed trouble, rightly, with her husband, young husband. And they went to Italy, where she completed a doctorate in political science, until it was very clear with the coming of Mussolini that the fate of the Jews in Germany would be replicated in Italy. And so they fled. And they found um, safe passage only to the Dominican Republic, as with many of the boatloads of Jewish refugees who were able to get out of Germany or of Europe in the 1930s, most of the boats were turned, they went to New York Harbor, and most of them were turned, turned away. They weren't, they weren't welcome. It wasn't part of the immigrant quota that was desired. I'm not sure it was anti-Jewish, but there must have been something of that. And a lot of the, most of the boats went to the Caribbean. And there they were welcomed. My favorite German professor, a woman who taught me German poetry, ended up in Cuba with her brother, who went on to become the chief rabbi here in England, uh, a man named Friedlander. And Hilda Domin and her husband, Löwenstein was her maiden name, um, ended up in the Dominican Republic. And, um, and she taught there. Uh, for 15 years, until the war was over, and she was one of the few Jews to risk returning to Germany. And there's a longer day we could spend just on Hilda Domine, because there was a very famous theologian uh, during this time, a man named Theodor Adorno, who said that you couldn't write poetry after Auschwitz. It wasn't possible to write poetry after the horror of Auschwitz. And Hilda Domin said, what else should we do? What else should we do? And she said, I'm not going to let my, the captors, the devastators, have control of this language. I'm going to make my mark. And so she switched careers and began writing poetry. And over the next 
50 years, she became one of the most distinguished contemporary German poets. She died, she was born in 1909. She died in 2006. This was a poem she wrote um, in the middle of her writing career, well into her 60s, nicht müde werden, sondern dem Wunder leise wie einem Vogel die Hand hinhalten. I've translated it a little bit differently here than on the sheet, because the word dem Wunder, the dative case, could mean wonder, but it could mean the wondrous as well. Don't grow weary, but hold your hand out quietly to what is wondrous, as if to a bird. It was worth that poem to come here today. I mean, if you really want to, you could just slip out quietly, take that poem with you, and spend the rest of the day thinking about it, just living your way into it. Don't grow weary. My, my wife and I were leading a summer service. We're now sort of moving back to the States to a beautiful town named Camden in Maine along the coast. And we planned a summer, an outdoor service on a beautiful, what turned out to be a, a spectacularly beautiful August morning in a botanical garden in this little town. There we were about 150 people surrounded with beds of flowers and a kind of English garden. If you can imagine the beauty of that on this spectacular day. And we began with this poem, and I asked, I did, I was talking to the children about it. I said, you know, if you were trying to attract a little bird to come to you, what would the gesture be? How would you do that? And this little girl, Lucinda, she was about four with these gold braids hanging down, just, just this beautiful little child. She looked up at me, she's very shy. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's exactly why, right. This before we looked at the poem. That's what you'd do, you'd, you'd hold your hand out, you'd open your hand, right? You wouldn't do this, or this. No, you, you, you gentle your body as much as you could, and you try to become as quiet as you could, to the point that maybe a bird would trust that you were safe, that it was okay to come to you. So I asked her if she would show the, the community. She was a little bit shy, so I picked her up, and she did it. It was so beautiful. Sorry? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Sometimes they do. Don't grow weary. Nicht murder God. That's such an, a powerful opening to the poem. And I think such an important message for us to hear. Don't grow weary. I mean, you've been living with the Brexit discussion for so long, debates, that I'm sure you're all just nauseated by it, as are we with our own version of the wall builder president, the violator president, the obstruction of justice president. We've got everything. I mean, you, you know, you really don't have it that bad. It could be worse. You could have a blondie with groomed hair. But I think in these times, our tendency is to grow exhausted. And it is an act of subversion I think, 
to hold on to what I am calling the sixth sense, alongside the five primal bodily senses, is a sixth sense wonder. A very beloved author in the United States, a woman named Rachel Carson, wrote a book with this title, which she published in the early 1960s. Do you, any of you know the name Rachel Carson? She is sometimes called the kind of beginning of the environmental movement. When she published in the 1950s a book called The Silent Spring, where she began to recognize that the bird populations were declining drastically. The bird populations in Germany are about 80% less than what they were 100 years ago. They've declined by 80%. They're still there. I mean, you still hear birds. But 100 years ago, why, why is that? What's happened? Chemicals. Farm, chemicals. Primarily the chemical industry. The spraying of the fields. Noise. The forests are dying. Deforestation. The wetlands for birds who, who need to propagate in wetlands. Yes, agriculture has shifted. Uh, airplanes, big buildings and cities. So many birds die every year just hitting buildings. Because they don't, they don't know what a building is, a young bird. So the way that we've created our world, Rachel Carson was trying to tell us, we're going to lose it all. And we'll, be, we'll go as well. We have to begin to live differently. So if you thought today was going to be a sort of a beautiful day of just you know, retreating from the world and all of that, it, it will be something of that. But it's in order to engage the world we live in. Because the, the sense of wonder can activate our conscience, our awareness of the fragility of our earth, our awareness of the vital role we play as part of nature. If we get to it this afternoon, we'll hear a little clip from a photographer uh, who talks about this point. You know, we, we forget that we're part of nature. A tree looking at the world around the tree would say, oh, there are nat there's nature going by. You know, we're part of nature. It's not just the flora and fauna around us. We're, we're a component part of that. And Rachel Carson, uh, alongside writing these remarkable books about the environment, wrote this little book called The Sense of Wonder, which she gave to her nephew, Henry, who was about five, because she wanted him, it's a chronicle of her, of her life with Henry over a one-year period, of discovering the world with Henry, of taking him down to the cove to look at the starfish, of wandering through the night meadows to listen to the sound of the wind in the trees, of rising early to see the sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean, to discover the world again. And it's a beautiful book. It's still in print, by the way, The Sense of Wonder by Rachel Carson. Don't grow weary, but hold your hand out quietly to what is wondrous, as if to a bird. We'll come back to that poem at the very end of the day. Because in, some, in a sense, that's everything is there. Dem Wunder die Hand hinhalten leise wie zu einem Vogel.
What is the wondrous? The word in English has a marvelous double entendre. It could be the miracle. A wonder is a miracle, right? But it's not just a miracle. Or you could say it this way, everything is a miracle. I like to put it that way. Everything is a miracle. Everything in our world, in our life, is a miracle. It's a miracle that there is a world. This is famously what Wittgenstein, at the end of a very complex treatise, said. The mystical is not how things are. The mystical is that things are. The mystical is that there's anything at all. And you've all wondered about that in your life. I know it. I see it on your face right now. Why is there anything? You know, why am I here able to think about why I'm here? Why do I have a language that can ask a question? Why? It's, it's astonishing. And no physical scientist or physicist can explain that. Why was there a beginning, if there was a beginning? Why? And what was God doing at the beginning? And what was there before God? All kinds of questions that children ask. My children ask when they were three, four, five. Daddy, what does God look like? My daughter at five asked. I was putting her to bed, and I told her a story. We had this tradition of telling stories. I made them up, and every night, no matter how tired I was, Dad, you have to, where did it, where's Ralph? And what happened to Emo? It was a, it was a monkey and, and a, a, a little elephant. Anyway, so and she, one night she asked me, what, what does God look like? I was a junior faculty member. I was just then teaching a course on images of God. And we'd just been reading James Cone. Do you know James Cone? An African-American theologian, really the, the beginning of black theology in the United States. And my daughter said, well, she said, um, what does God look like? So I began this long explanation. You know, God looks like nothing and everything. And God is in every form and in no form. You know, I mean, and she, she listened to this patiently for a while, and she said, Dad, it's okay if you don't know. <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. It's okay if you don't know. And then, and then she said, I think God is black. And I thought, has she been reading? James Cone, who says that, that God is black, that God is black. And I said, well, that's amazing, Emma. I mean, tell me more. Well, yeah, she said, because the little kitty, the little black kitty, God must be like the little black kitty who lives next door. God must be black, like the cat. Beautiful. She'd seen something beautiful and something tender and something precious. And she concluded with her four or five-year-old wisdom that must be God. God must be like that. Beautiful. And God must be like the long line of black Londoners sitting across from me in the tube this morning, each with their headsets on, each listening to their music, and just enjoying each other. And God is certainly like the people trying to cross our southern border into the United States. And God is certainly among the immigrants who are trying to find their way to the United Kingdom to live a better life. And if you say to me, but they're not seeking political asylum, they're what the Germans call economic refugees, I would say, that's how my grandparents came to the United States. They were economic refugees from Germany. 
in the 1920s. That's why migration happens through the history of humanity. People are looking for better fields for their farms. They're looking for land. They're looking for some chance to live, just like all of us, just like all of us and our children and our grandchildren. They're no different than all of us. And in a sense, you know, we live our political lives, I think, for the sake of those who are coming behind us. The rising generations and the generations that are not yet here. And this is a day, let's just be honest about it, this is a day when we are here together for those generations that are coming. Because they're looking to us for leadership. They're looking to us to give them a world that's habitable, to give them an environment that's sustainable, to give them a marketplace that's survivable. And so the stakes are high today for us. The stakes are high because we're doing this not for ourselves alone, but for the sake of all of those whose lives depend upon ours. So there we go. It's interesting that um, over the last few years that I've been coming here, my father has been declining into deeper and deeper Alzheimer's. He's a brilliant man, uh, a celebrated writer, author, professor, an amazingly gifted teacher. And um, as he's slipped now into the depth of Alzheimer's, he's become a little child, a little two-year-old. And uh, there's a sense of loss for that for me huge loss for my mother, who spent 70 years with this wonderful man, and he's now disappeared. He doesn't know really who she is anymore. But there's also, also a sort of a gift, a moment of gift, because if I get down on my hands and knees with my dad now, I find him on the floor, looking eye to eye at a picture or showing him something on the table or telling him a story about something that I remember. He doesn't know himself at all anymore, just like no child knows themselves anymore. So in a sense, that's the extreme case, right? But in a sense, the positive side of that is for all of us to see the gift of holding this alive in our lives. And that's why I talked a little bit about neuroscience. It's also helpful. It's also essential to remain young in our lives as we grow older. It's why I think older people like, be, like, like being around children, because there's something marvelous about little children. And why not choose to be with them? Why not choose to, somebody said, picking up the leaf? You know, I bet nobody, nobody here picked up a leaf coming, coming. To, but, but what a wonder to see the leaves blowing with the wind of these big winds today. And they're all around, and they're colors and shapes. And gosh, there's so much to discover. I hope that, that this day will be something like that for all of us. There's just so much to discover. And the miracle is everywhere. It's everywhere. That's where we lost it in the way we thought about miracle as something supernatural. I would say the natural is the utterly miraculous. 
And if there is a supernature, it's just more of the nature. It's something not beyond nature only, but it's the heart of nature is the miracle. And you know, the, the bottom line is my father really isn't suffering. That's a beautiful thing. It's very difficult for me and for us, but he's happy. I mean, it's not always that case with dementia. Some people become very angry, very frustrated, very confused. But he's mostly really happy. But your, your point is exactly right. How do, we, how do we hold on to the goodness that is at the heart of life in the midst of all of the obscenity and the violence surrounding us? I, I found a little place to stay out in um, Ealing Common. Is that the tube stop? And as I'm walking by, there are literally 300 bundles of flowers along the street, right by Tweeford Garden or something like that, not far from the tube station. And I wondered what those were for. And then I saw the posting of a man who'd been brutally murdered there on September 27th. Um, an Asian-looking, Indian-looking man. I don't know what his origins were. And the police are still looking for some leads as to how this happened. And, you know, that's the other side of our society, that violence is happening randomly all around us. All around us. And beauty is happening randomly all around us. And as I looked at this picture of this beautiful man, and I saw this these flowers that nobody has touched for three, three weeks, three and a half weeks. They're all still there. I thought that's a sign of hope, that in the midst of something this obscene, people poured out their hearts, and the city didn't come clean it all up. So it still remains a sort of a testimony to a life brutally ended for probably no, no good reason. So I think your question is the right one. How do we... How do we really hold on to the goodness in the midst of the violence, the beauty in the midst of the banality, the hope in the midst of discouragement? How do we resist growing weary? And Gilles Domine says it very simply, just learn to hold your hand out. This is metaphor, this is poetry. It might work if you're in St. Mark's Square in <laughs> In um, Venice, it certainly will work if you have anything in your hand. They'll come. The pigeons will come. <laughs> I remember that when I was a boy and thinking, oh my gosh, I was covered with pigeons. And my mother, who knew pigeons better than I did, said, oh, you know, that's enough. We have to clean your clothes here. So they will come if we're still enough. But Hilda Domin is talking about something else. She's talking about an essential way of being in the world. To learn to quiet ourselves to open ourselves to the wondrous, which is happening all the time. In your life, despite whatever clouds are hanging over, there's always a sun shining there. And in the midst of all of the lives around you, all of them, every one of them, and all the non-life around you, all the things around you, all the places around you, so this is a day, I would say, of committing ourselves to this path of seeking the wondrous all around us and within us and within us. So I want to look at the second poem on the sheet. 
Oh, it's a great poem <laughs> by One Can Miss Mountains by an American poet from Minnesota. Anyone know where Minnesota is? Kind of in the middle north of the United States. Not quite in the middle, but it's about halfway across the country, up on borders on Canada. There are as many lakes in Minnesota as are sheep on the island of Iona. They say 10,000. Well, that's a little bit. Let's say Mull and Iona has 10,000 sheep. Um, this is a poem, poem that was published uh, in the New Yorker magazine first, and that's where I first read it. An astonishing poem, a lyric poem, a playful poem, but a poem with tremendous depth to it. Let's, let's read it together. One can miss my, who'd like to read this? Who could read this for us? Not everybody at once. One can miss mountains and pine. And you see right away in the title, he's playing with language, an old-fashioned word, to pine. What does it mean when you pine for something? Do you use that word? I don't, yeah, it's longing. It's a deep longing. I mean, I don't think we use the word much anymore, perhaps because, do you say, sorry? Yeah, it's a tree too. That's it. That's the beauty of this. It's a tree. You can miss mountains and pine. You can miss the pine. It's a plural form. You don't say pines. You say pine. It's a brilliant poem. Right off the bat, he's got us. You can miss mountains and you can pine for them, right? You can miss them and pine. Or you can miss mountains and pine. There it is. So we're right in the thick of a great poem. Okay, give us a read. One can miss mountains and pine. One can dismiss a whisper's revelations and go on as before, as if everything were perfectly fine. One does. And, and let me just say, you know, if I were teaching creative writing, as I sometimes do, I would say never use the word one in a poem. It's so off-putting. One can do this, one can do that. It just feels so formal and artificial, right? No, be bold. You, you can, you know, but no, this poet is smarter than I. And he knows that he's playing with us by using this very formal language. One can miss mountains and pine. You have to kind of get the right posture. One can miss mountains and pine. One can dismiss a whisper's revelations and go on before as if everything were perfectly fine. One does. Go on. One loses wonder among stores of things. One can even miss the basso boom of the ocean's rumpus room. And it's okay, that's a line. We've got to work on that one. The basso boom of the ocean's rumpus room. I don't know if the la when's the last time you thought of the ocean as a rumpus room. But what happens in a rumpus room? Play. Lots of play, right? It's the one room in the house where there are no rules of order. At least that was true for me. The rumpus room, everything happens in the rumpus room, right? Because, well, it's the kids' room, I think. It's untidy. It's untidy. Okay. But, but it, I'm going to ask you to read that as, with a, as big a voice as you can. You have such a beautiful voice. The basso boom. Try it. One can even miss 
one can even miss the basso boom of the ocean's rumpus room and its rhythm. Ah, great. Thank you. That was great. I mean, just play with this poem. This is such a great poem. Go ahead. Let's finish it. A man can leave this earth and take nothing, not even longing along with him. Ah, that's a great poem. I mean, this is, this is the shadow side of the day. We can live our whole lives and never pay attention to what's there. And never wake up. We can live our whole life oblivious to the miracles that are happening all the time, everywhere, all of the time, everywhere. Where? Everywhere. When? All of the time. Everywhere the miracles are happening. When? All the time. Where? Everywhere. Everywhere. And this poem is so beautiful because right in the middle of it, one loses wonder among stores of things. We've got this double entendre thing going again. What do you mean among stores of things? What is it? How do you use the word uh, stores of things? What, there are a couple of ways of understanding that. Possessions. Possessions? Right. Stores of things. And what else? Store, what is a store? Come on. Shops. Yeah, shops. Sorry. Shops of things. Yeah, I mean, both of these. Among piles of things and among shops of things. I remember as a child, and I know it was true. I'm sure it was true in London. Maybe it still is. But when I was a little boy growing up, well, in the South and then in Wisconsin, we always visited my German grandparents in Chicago at Christmas time every year, my mother's parents. And it was always like going home. My grandparents were very special in my life. And one of the great treats around Christmas time in Chicago was going down to the Loop. That's the downtown Chicago, where all the old department stores were, the big ones. Carson Peary Scott's, all of the big stores. Well, Harrods, I suppose, here you'd have, and other big stores, right? And we lined up on these bitter, cold mornings with thousands and thousands of people waiting our turn as we walked by the windows before Christmas to see the wonders the magic. Do you, did you do that as a child here in London? Or? And what was so amazing to me then, I didn't realize it, of course, was that everything, we, nothing was for sale in the windows. The only time that the windows were completely devoted to play, to the marvels, little scenes with elves and Santa and figures moving and lights and and we stood I remember our toes frozen but we didn't even we weren't even aware of it as we went from one window to the next and you'd hear the children when they would come oh look at that look at that look at that and the adults would patiently stand back but creaming to get a view you know looking to get a view too because they hadn't given up the hope of being surprised and delighted the one time in the year that the store windows were there to delight and not to lure for the sale. One can lose, one loses wonder among stores of things. 
one loses wonder among the clutter of things or among stores of things. Read it as you will. They both work. We lose our sense of wonder chasing the newest gadget, chasing the newest design, chasing the newest whatever. Maybe none of you do, but it's so much a part of our society, of our society built on growth and consumption. And um, there's nothing really wrong with it, but there's really nothing right with it either. You know, it's, it's amoral to me, at least today. It's amoral. One can leave this earth and take nothing, not even longing, along with him. Very sad, but it's also an invitation. Don't let this happen to you. Don't leave this life without longing for something more. I mean, there's the invitation. That longing is what makes us human. I would say Descartes got it fundamentally wrong on a number of points, but this one especially, I think, therefore I am. Maybe I long, I pine, I desire, therefore I am. There's something so fundamental about longing, about pining, about desiring. And the, the real question is, what are we desiring? What are we desiring? You know, how are we desiring? And what are we desiring? And for whom are we desiring? And toward what are we desiring? This is a day to think about wonder as a possibility that opens us to something larger and something truer and something more beautiful, perhaps, than what we otherwise, in our default position, might come to know. Well, we're, we're saturated, for sure. I don't, I don't know. Social media is not my world. I play in it a little bit because I have to to communicate with my students. They don't read email anymore. That's really old-fashioned. If I send them an email, it might be two months before they read it. But I can get them on a WhatsApp in, a, in five minutes. I resisted this for years, and I finally have given in. There's nothing really wrong with any of it, but there's really nothing helpful either. That is, it doesn't, it doesn't awaken in us this essential humanness. And it can be quite problematic. But I really want to focus today not on the problematic and not brooding, because there is a bit of brooding in this poem, but it's a longing, too, that's in the poem. And that's really where I want to begin our day. Because you're here because something in the advertisement got you out of bed this morning and brought you the long trip here. Yeah, go oh, the alarm clock. That's the easiest thing. But more than that, we're here together because we're bound together by a desire for something larger and truer and more beautiful in our lives. And in a way, that's where we should be every day. And it is when we choose to be. So today is just a day of cultivating the choice to live into wonder, to wander into wonder, to... There's a, a, a song that my mother, I still hear her voice, always was asked to sing the solo. She had a beautiful, has a beautiful voice. She's still singing at 90, almost. Uh, I wonder as I wander. Do you remember the Christmas song, Carol? It's an old English carol. I wonder as I wander 
How's it go? I wonder as I wander out under the stars that Jesus our Savior was born here to die. And so on it goes on. And if you live in London and you haven't seen that for a long time, because you don't see very many stars in London, if you were on Iona over the weekend as I was, oh my goodness, the stars. Oh my goodness, the heavens. And I suspect that actually we don't look at the sky anymore in cities. You don't, because there's really not much to see. Oh yeah, the desert is the most amazing place to see the sky. No, you can't. It's still there. That's the thing. It's still there. Let me tell you, I report from my own, it's still there, the Milky Way. But um, there are people who have grown up in the city's children who have never seen the Milky Way. They couldn't. You can't see it in the city. So in a way, you know, how do we awaken and maintain a sense of openness to the world? That's really what our day is all about. Well, those of you who live in London or near enough to come to days like this are really fortunate to know about this center. And every time I come and see the program notices of things coming up, I think I should just move to London and just get a, an annual membership here and come to everything. Because this is really a quite remarkable. I think of the Meditatio Center as a change agency a place to think about how we change ourselves and how we think about bringing that change into the world around us. So, We're going to shift gears and to think in our next hour about uh, an, a phrase that was I discovered when I was reading the last book published posthumously of Gerald May, a marvelous uh, psychiatrist and spiritual director, who for many years taught at a place called the Shalem Institute in Washington, D.C. And at the end of his life, he wrote a book called The Wisdom of Wilderness. And he recounts a time of being in a rather deep depression himself and uh, trying to figure out how to get out of this. And he began taking his tent and his sleeping bag out to the wilderness, out in the mountains of Virginia, four or five hour drive, and just camping, spending time in the wild, not in campgrounds, in manicured uh, tent sites, but just wandering into the wilderness and camping. And he developed the notion that, I love the word, the slowing. He said what we need is the slowing in our society. He needed it, but he felt that in the times in which we live, we're all living at the, at the point of such a frenetic movement that exhaustion is almost inevitable. Deep exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion, weariness of the heart, exhaustion. And how do we find ourselves a path of moving out of that? That's what we'll spend the next hour thinking about. I want to begin with a poem, and we're going to hear one of the best readers in the English language read it. I invited her to come today, but she had another another <laughs> event, Meryl Streep. So just, just listen to her voice. My life is not this steeply slumbering hour, 
which you see me holding. Much stands behind me. I stand before a black tree. I am only one of my many mouths, and of that, the one that will be still, soonest. I am the rest between the two mouths, which are somehow always in discord, because death wants to climb over, but in a dark interval, This is one of the early great translators of, of Rainer Maria Rilke, Robert Bly's translation, which was, for many English readers, the first real acquaintance that they had with, with Rilke's poetry. There had been earlier translations of Rilke. The first one I ever came into touch with was one by a woman with the unlikely name of the translator, Babette Deutsch, Babette German. And she did a beautiful translation of a dozen poems from the Book of Hours, this among them, a bilingual edition, uh, which for me was just a great uh, revelation. That's when I began translating really good because there wasn't really much available. And I began doing this for my friends in college. And over the years, it just kept increasing until seven or eight years ago, I published a book which is back there called Prayers of a Young Poet. It's the first part of the Book of Hours in the version that Rilke wrote. Before he envisioned writing a Book of Hours with three parts, he simply wrote these poems having come back from a very intense journey, his first trip to Russia with his beloved Lou Andreas Salome. My first event here at the Meditatio Center was to talk about those poems. Um, and we read this one then. This is Robert Bly's translation, you have mine, it's a little different. But I want to say a word about these poems, because what happened to Rilke when he went to Russia was extraordinary. It changed his life, he said, forever. And it had to do with his encounters partly with the Russian people and their language, which he struggled to learn, and eventually learned well enough to begin translating out of Russian into German. And he even wrote some poems in what I'm told is pretty, pretty rusty Russian, but he tried, he tried. He went back to Russia again, a second visit, and that really solidified things. It was his experience of the Russian people, the simple people, the peasants, the farmers, and their language. And he arrived on Good Friday in Moscow and had made arrangements to see the great writer Tolstoy. And he was with this ravishingly beautiful, somewhat older woman, 14 years his, his elder, Lou Andreas Salome, who spoke more Russian than he did. Her family was a German family from St. Petersburg. And um, she was the one who made the contact. And, he, and Tolstoy was quite drawn to her and found Rilke, I think, just a kind of burden. Couldn't really understand that much. And he was a strange man. And I don't mean that critically, just a, a somewhat unusual man. But he warned them. He said, there are two things I would warn you against when you're here. First, stay away from the peasants. And second, by all means, stay away from the church. So Rilke, being Rilke, said, OK, this is what we're going to do. 
we're going to the church, and we're going to take in the peasants. <laughs> and they spent that all that night and Saturday and all through the Saturday night, much of it at least, in the Kremlin, which is not the center of power. It became that. But in Rilke's day, it was just the old city of Moscow, the Kremlin, full of 11 churches. I think five of them were monasteries. And he was so profoundly moved by that experience of being in these very dark churches with almost no natural light coming in, but illumined from within by what would have been kerosene lamps and candlelight at that time. One church above all, the Church of the Dormition, with, uh, if you go into that church, some of you have been there, perhaps, uh, the icons start at the floor and go up to the, all the way, cover the ceiling and all the walls and the columns are completely covered with gold gilded icons. This for Rilke was a revelation. It was the darkness of those places that drew him. And it was a darkness that gave him a sense. He, he had just gone to Italy with his mother, probably not the best idea for a young aspiring artist to, to, to go with your mom to Italy. But there it was, and that's part of the story of his life. He had this very overbearing mother, um, Fia. And, uh, and he, that's another story for another time. Let me just say, the Orthodox Church, the darkness, the people, the stirring of prayers really was profoundly moving to him. And when he wrote these 68 poems in a, in a fortnight, three weeks, when he came back in the September of 1899, in the version that I use for my translation, it's, um, it includes notes like in a Tagebuch, in a, in a journal, a day, a day book, that the monk would write the poem. He, he, the conceit was an old Orthodox monk, iconographer, a writer of icons, as the Orthodox put it, who wrote these poems. And at the bottom, or then sometimes at the top, there are little notes about what was happening at the time he wrote the poem, which are autobiographical. This was Rilke himself, really writing the poems and commenting on when they were written. Beautiful. It's a beautiful collection. And early on, we find this poem, which is on your sheet, the next poem, My Life Is Not This Seat Hour. Mein Leben ist nicht diese steile Stunde. That's the, the opening line in German. Isn't that beautiful? My Leben ist nicht diese steile Stunde, diese steile Stunde, this steep hour. Robert Bly translated it famously as this steeply sloping hour, which has a beautiful rhythm to it. I love that. But Rilke is a little simpler. Steile Stunde. Mein Leben, my, your life is not this steep hour in which you see me hurrying. So he translated the, when he wrote the first version, all of the do, the use, were um, capitalized. And these were prayers written by, ostensibly by this old monk. God. Imagine this, a, a genre not unlike Augustine's Confessions, where he writes a book to God. And the you, all the way through the Confessions, is God. Rilke 
20 years later, looking back on this book, wrote in a letter to Lou, and he wrote these for her as a gift. He wrote them in a black ledger book and gave it to her as a gift before he left Berlin. He, 20 years later, he wrote back and said, I now realize that all these poems were really addressed to you. It's a powerful moment. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter to whom they were addressed. Because if love is love, then it doesn't distinguish in its addressees. I mean, Barb Marley, the great theologian of our generation, got it right. One love. There's one love. Do you hear it in your, in your mind? One love. I don't have dreads. These guys across from me, in the, I was just so envious. They had such great hair. My life is not this steep hour in which you see me hurrying so. I mean, in a way, this might be for you when you go home tonight, a prompt. Just take those lines and write them down in a journal, if you keep a journal. If you don't keep a journal, start a journal. Or write them down on a piece of paper and see where this would take you. The, it's, it's a confession. It's a confession. It's a confession of faith. My life is not this steep hour in which you see me so frantic, so busy, so troubled, so exhausted with all the things that I need to do. My life is not this steep hour in which you see me hurry. So I am a tree standing before what I once was. An extraordinary line. Good morning. Come in. I'm a tree standing before what I once was. I'm only one of my many mouths, and at that, the first to close. Let's just pause at that paragraph. This is a poem about the slowing, about how important it is for us to slow down. And that doesn't mean, if you're a meditator, you'll understand this. Even if you meditated today for the very first time, you'll understand this, that sitting in silence, you realize how fast everything is going on inside of you. One thought races to the next, to the next, to the next, and you think, I should be meditating. And then another thought comes, and you begin to chase it, or it chases you down some lonely alleyway. And then you gather yourself again with your breath, with your mantra, and then it goes again. And what one learns in meditation is that in a way that's the natural way the mind works. In a sense, having a mantra, whether it's Maranatha or some other simple word, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing says any simple word will do. He recommended a one-syllable word, but a four-syllable word will do. But just to stay with it as a way of coming back to the breath, coming back to that essentialness of who you are, which has nothing to do with the hurrying of your mind. It's underneath that. And it's also in the midst of that. But these images that Rilke uses, I've been reading this poem for years. They're very strange. I am a tree standing before what I once was. Rilke loved trees. He loved trees. And 
We'll end the day with a poem of mine about trees. I, I hadn't realized that how drawn I am to trees as well. What is it about a tree? What do trees do? They give oxygen for us to breathe. Yeah, that's the kind of scientific thing that they think. They last a long time if they're lucky, if they're not cut down. Or, yeah. They grow up and they grow down. They grow up and they grow down. We don't see the growing down. Now, Rilke, that's where he imagines. If you want to know what God is, God is like the tangle of roots deep down in the earth. Why? A tree that has no roots will fall over. And a tree that has no roots will not survive. It needs the roots. Why? To give it life. To, to bring water, the minerals. All of the things that a tree needs to grow from the, from the depths. And some trees spread out with their roots, and some have tap roots that go straight down, deep, deep into the earth. I am a tree, meaning I need to root myself. I need to, what, what does a tree not do? It doesn't wander around. It stays put. Yes, it stands where it started. It stands where it started. It stays, it, it honors that great Benedictine value one of the things that Benedictine monks commit themselves to, stability of place. Stabi somebody said it, stability of place, which is an extraordinary virtue that none of us can claim as ours. We live in a, in a world that doesn't know about stability of place much. The monks live a countercultural existence then, in ancient days as now, today. Stability of place. We can learn from trees. To say that I am a tree standing before what I once was, standing before what I once was, is a strange metaphor. And I am only one of my many mouths. And at that, the first to close. That's a profound moment. I was leading a retreat in Spain in September. And at the end of the retreat, my, my hosts took, took, we went out to lunch together to a little cafe in the town where they live near Malaga. And uh, <laughs> we were sitting at this table having a lovely conversation, but I was aware that at the table next to ours were five women, Spanish, young Spanish women, talking with each other, all of them talking all the time. <laughs> and it somehow worked in Spanish. They literally were talking, and apparently listening, I don't know. But it was going all the time. I mean, Spanish, maybe, maybe they were just saying, you know, being on one note, on one syllable, and waiting for something to happen. I don't know. I couldn't understand it at all. But it was extraordinary. Yeah. Generally, that doesn't work. Generally, if you want to listen to anything, you have to stop. And I think this lies at the heart of this poem. If you really want to know what's, what the world is, what, who you are, you're going to have to stop talking. You're going to have to create space to listen. I think this is what these lines are onto. For us, the slowing has in part to do with coming to a place 
where we are courageous enough or confident enough or perhaps weary enough to stop chattering and to give ourselves to listening, which is a rarity in our lives. That's really what worries me more than social media, is that we live with constant noise. It could be the television, or it could be the radio. I grew up in a house, we had a television, sort of, but it was only on for an hour or so each day, fairly regulated, and I didn't really miss it. I missed everything happening in the 1960s and 70s because I didn't really watch television. But actually, it wasn't such a big loss. But I knew friends, and perhaps you've known people like this, who the television was on all the time. I'd go to their house, there'd be nobody home, but the television was on. You know, it was on all the time. And of course, in the old days, do you remember? At 12 o'clock or 11 o'clock, the signal went out. And you'd hear this, in the States, there was a little bullseye there. Did you have that too? In, in a white spot, yeah? Yeah. Well, that's no longer the case. I mean, the, the little um, the place I'm staying has cable television, and there are hundreds and hundreds of stations. It's like, really? Really? I, I sort of skipped through them just to see if there's anything that I could write. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of things going on out there. But how do, we find, how do we find that silence? And clearly, the external silence is only the beginning. Meditation reminds us of that over and over again, that you can turn all of the outside noise on and the inside noise is still really loud. So how do we come to befriend, and that's the first thing, the inside noise, the chatter, to the point that we can rest with it and let it go? And if you ask me what's the long-term, the durational learning in meditation, it's that. It won't turn off the chatter right away. It might take years. And it will never turn it off completely. It can't. Because the mind is always firing away. But you can befriend it. And you can slow it down. And the slowing is really important. To start to get a clearer perspective, not on the Brexit talks or on the political trials of the day, but on your own life and the true life, the authentic life that is yours to live, which you may miss with all your busyness. We may miss, I may miss with all my busyness. Oh gosh, you've got many mouths. I do too. I mean, I have the mouth as a teacher. When my students think of me, they know what mouth is mine. Yes, and I have a mouth that I, with my parents, when I speak with them, I have a certain way of, I'm always their son, their, you know, their child, in a way. Don't you? We all, we have many mouths. Rilke played with this image in, in um, other poems and in the single novel that he wrote, where he talks about the different faces that we have. That we have all these faces, right? The face that we have in our workplace, the face that we have in our intimate life, the face that we have in our false life when we're not being truthful, the face that we have in our parish, the, face, the faces, the mouths that we have. But there's only one true mouth, and that's the first to close. 
That's the one we'll find out about only when we pause and live into the truth of who we are. And that will take time. So this is a poem about slowing down. I am the stillness between two notes. This is a beautiful musical image that don't easily harmonize because the note death wants to lift itself up. This is so quintessential to Rilke's view of our predicament. In one of his late poems, in one of the elegies, the eighth elegy, he has this marvelous musing, we'll come back to this this afternoon, that he calls the open. He says that's what we're really made for, is to live into das offene, the open. And he said, you know, and he's being inventive here, he's being fictional here, I think. But he said animals live always with God right in front of them and death behind them. We turn it around. We always are worrying about God behind us. We put God behind us because we're so worried about death in front of us. And an animal has no imagining about death. An animal is living in the moment, as far as we know. Is aware of death. Animals grieve. Yes, that's true. But they're not worrying about their own death, as we sometimes, perhaps even often, do. So what's going on here for Rilke? What's the other note, if death wants to lift itself up? Well, it could be God, it could be life, it could be joy, it could be the beautiful. But death is the thing, he says, that always gets in the way. But the poem isn't simple here. He's not going to simplify this because he goes on. But in the dark interval, in the dark interval, this, this stillness between the two notes, this dark interval, both come trembling to join as one. And the song, as Robert Bly translates, goes on. Beautiful. Actually, the German is very simple. Das Lied bleibt schön. The song remains, continues, lingers, beautiful. Think about this poem with me for a little while. It starts out with this image of anxiety, of frenetic activity, of exhaustion, which, if we're honest, is part of our life all of the time in a society like ours where we move just too fast. We move unnaturally fast all of the time. Try to imagine what cities were like before there were no machines. What it would be like to be in a place with a lot of people with no machines. No noise of that kind. There still would be noise, and there still would be anxiety, and there still would be exhaustion. So it's not the machines that have done it, but they've added a dimension, an intensity to our lives that is somewhat exhausting. I mean, I spent just a week on Iona leading a retreat. And there are a few cars on the island, but there's really nowhere to go. I mean, there are only a few miles of roads. 
the sheep farmers have them to transport things around. But you go for hours and hours, you don't, you don't hear a car, you don't see a car. You're, not, you're shocked when, when one comes up over the horizon on one of the three paved roads on the island. And after a week of that, to return to Glasgow, I thought I was in, I thought I was in a horror chamber. It was just so noisy. You know, it's just a normal city. It's a beautiful city, it's a wonderful city. But the, the shock was noticeable. And it's good that we can still pl find places in our lives where we can remember the stillness. Not just the outer stillness, but the inner stillness. And that's the heart of this poem. He's talking about the inner stillness, what's going on within us in the dark interval, in the stillness between the notes. Whatever those notes of conflict, of tension are in your life, whatever they are, where one is trying to reach up and, and overwhelm the other one. Death is reaching up over life. Bad news over good news. Hurry over calmness. Anxiety over joy. Evil over good. Rancor over kindness. Just whatever those tensions are, Rilke is saying, it's not that you flee from one to the other. It's that you learn to live in the energy between them. That's where the song is. Such a remarkable poem. There's nothing simple. Well, it's very simple. There's nothing complicated about this. And there's nothing hard about this. But it's not easy. Because if you imagine that your life, the you-ness of who you are, the I-ness of who I am, is in the dark interval. In the place of the Germans have this great word, Spannungsfeld. How would you translate it? In the field of tensions. Right? That's, our life is a Spannungsfeld. We're, we're living between these things. And for Rilke, our task is to know that that's where the song is. It's not on the good side over against the dark side. It's in the dark interval where these things finally come to join as one. That's our work as humans, is to find a way to live into the, a unity, a oneing, as Julian of Norwich put it, what is prayer? It's a oneing, O-N-E-I-N-G, a oneing of all of the clutter in our lives. It's bringing things together. It's a holding that still point in the turning world. And do not call it fixity. One of my favorite lines from Eliot, right? From Bernd Norton. A still point in the turning world. And do not call it fixity. It's energy there that Rilke is after. And it's the song there that Rilke is steering us toward. And it's beauty there that he's after. Und das Lied bleibt schön. The song remains, goes on. Beautiful. He uses an adjective there, not an adverb. An adjective. Not beautifully, just beautiful.
Okay, let's look at the next poem. This is a day of really letting the poems carry us. And one more Rilke poem. This is un yet unpublished. Um, Rilke wrote in the, for the end of his life, he finished the great Duino elegies, which he started in 1912, and then came the devastation of the war, the Great War, which really just undid him for all kinds of reasons. The horror of it, he was also eventually employed, he was an Austrian citizen. He eventually was employed for the propaganda effort to uphold the war from the German side to write heroic accounts from the, from the front, which he'd never seen, which was a horror. But that happened in the UK, it happened everywhere, writing these heroic stories so that people would enlist, so that they would go gladly to the trenches, where they, if they survived, lived in utter horror and despair. Anyway, it took him 10 years to come back until 1922, and he finished the elegies. And just before he finished the last elegy, the 10th elegy, in a short period of time, three weeks, in a burst of creative work, he wrote 55 poems that have changed German literature, the sonnets to Orpheus. They were only written in about eight days, because he wrote them in two stretches, in a five-day stretch, first, and then a, a 10 days later in a three-day stretch. And they have remade modernist German literature. Well, this is my take at a translation, very uh, demanding poems to translate. And it starts with, oh, maybe you have some native speakers here, so help me with this. We're the pressers, we're the achievers, we're the makers, we're the doers. I don't know how you translate a word like treiben, we're the ones making things, pushing, we're pushing, we're the pushers, we're doers. But this march of time, it's of little worth among whatever abides, not whatever abides, whatever abides. Do we have a microphone? Can we have somebody read this? We're doers, but this march of time it's of little worth among whatever abides. All that hastens will soon be gone, but what lingers consecrates us. Children, don't waste your courage on speed or squander it in flight. All is at rest, darkness and bright, blossom and book. Oh, thank you. This is a marvel as a poem. It's a marvel as a poem. I mean, you have to remember the 1920s, the first experiments in flight are happening, the first experiments in mechanized flight are happening 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier. Motorized cars changing human life. Of course, the trains have been around for a long while now, changing human communities, binding us more closely together, hastening the world we live in. 
Where did you find yourself pausing as you read this poem or heard it read? What moment in the poem for you lifted itself up? What lingers consecrates us. What lingers consecrates us. What lingers makes us holy. That, that's the, well, that's where I was the way I did. That's my title. Not really good. There's something about the abiding of the song in the early poem. And here's simply the lingering. Whatever lingers. He doesn't want to say what it is. It's what lingers is what's most important. And I suspect, actually, this is something that we, we all somehow know, that in the many things in our lives, there are only some things, some few things that linger, that, that, that abide with us, that, that, that are kind of a deep undercurrent in our lives that carry us in the deep places. All that hastens will soon be done. You know that's true. But what lingers consecrates us. And this last three-line stanza, this is a sonnet. You know, there are 14 little things coming here. That's the way he writes all of his sonnets, 4433. Contemporary writers of sonnets might do it differently, but that's Rilke's take. Always separating the stanzas. All as it rests, and you know, the obvious first question is really? Really? All is at rest? Is, all, is everything at rest? Mm, not all the time. It doesn't look that way to us ever, really. It's like there's lots of unrest going on. Really, is pointing to something else than simply a description of the surface. All is at rest. This is his credo. He's not the only person who could make that his or her credo, but it's his credo. All is at rest. So Darkness. The of the ocean, isn't it? The ocean the Although even in the depths, the ocean is, ooh, yeah, it's moving, but yes. But right, no matter, no matter how turbulent the surface, if you go down, Underneath the pull of the waves, you will come to a place where there's a quiet, where there's more stillness that you could never imagine on the surface. Yes, absolutely right. All is at rest, darkness and bright, and he's giving us these contrasting images. Blume und Buch is a German flower and book. Blossom and book caught for me something of the alliteration in his last line, Blume und Buch. So it's an odd collection of things, darkness and brightness, a blossom and a book. These are the things, these are the four things that Rilke chooses to describe how everything is at rest. I don't think that he thought long and hard over these things. It was partly the sound of the words, probably the music of the words, the rhyme of the words. But it may have been something from the, from the unconscious, which is where poetry lives. 
where it grows, where it finds its way in the unmanaged part of our creative mind, where we are truest to who we are. Darkness and bright. We're back, in a sense, to that earlier poem. Blossom and book. Just carry this poem with you. And let's turn to the next. Again, this is all under the rubric of the slowing. The slowing. Wonder can't be done fast. Wonder slows us down by its very nature. It slows us down to see, as you put it, so just a simple image of a, a particular, who said a, flower, a, a leaf? A particular leaf. You know, not all the leaves hanging on the tree or all the leaves on the ground. A child will pick up one leaf and look at it. Wonder, the sense of wonder slows us down, the slowing. This is by the, sad to say, the late Mary Oliver. She died some months ago after living a life devoted to the art of poetry. And if there was a poet in the United States I would call a national treasure, it would be Mary Oliver. If I only had to say one, I'd say it's Mary Oliver, who, if she did a reading, she, she, she didn't like to do readings. She didn't do many of them. She really wanted her, her quiet, the simple rhythm of waking way before dawn, and taking her little dog out for a long walk in the dunes in Provincetown, or in the last part of her life, she moved to Florida, but by, always by the sea. Blue Iris, a late poem of Mary Oliver. Now that I'm free to be myself, who am I? A great question. Now that I'm well, maybe you're not free to be yourself. You know, that's already there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of journeying before that first line. But let's say that you're free to be yourself. Let's just say, for the moment, that today, on this day, the 26th day of October, 2019, you have arrived. You are free to be yourself. Well, who the heck are you? Who the heck am I if I'm really free to be myself? Can't fly, can't run, and see how slowly I walk. It's written by an old woman who spent her life walking, walking in the dunes, walking by the sea, walking through the, through the pine groves, walking in the blueberry patches, walking, walking, walking. Well, I think I can read books. Ha! Look, I can do that. I can read books. I can do it. I can read books. I've got hundreds on my Kindle. I don't have a Kindle. You may. I, having just moved my library, let me say, I wish they were all on the Kindle. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I wish for the sake of the move they'd been on the Kindle. But uh, no, that's another problem. What's that you're doing? The green-headed fly shouts as it buzzes past. How does a green-headed fly shout? How does a green-headed fly shout? <laughs> What's that you're doing? <laughs> What's that you're doing? <laughs> Good. 
I close the book. Well, I can write down words like these. Softly. Ah, look at me. I can read books and I can write. What's that you're doing? Whispers the wind, pausing in a heap. Oh, I like that. Just outside my window. A heap. Can you imagine the wind pausing in a heap? Can you imagine it kind of heaping up and just boom, and it's suddenly silent? I love the image. You know, if, what makes a good poem good, a great poem great, are moments of startlement, of surprise. And this is one. The wind pauses, but to imagine it, using a metaphor, it pauses in a heap. A different kind of heap. OK, exactly right. But imagine that it pauses in a heap just outside my window. All of it, the whole wind, all of London's wind, shoom, boom, and it's suddenly quiet right there. Give me a little time, I say back to its staring silver face. Did you know the wind had a silver face? Did you know that? Well, sure, it does. I, I see it now, the silver-faced heap of wind just outside my window. It doesn't happen all of a sudden, you know. Doesn't it? Says the wind, and breaks open, releasing distillations of blue iris. What an image. Releasing distillations. What does an iris smell like? No. It doesn't have any visible fragrance. Oh, beautiful blue. And it. Okay. It's very early. Okay, there's something there. And distillations. What a beautiful word. Distillations, right? There you see. If you're going to smell it, you're going to have to distill it. You're going to have to take all of the fragrance of the iris and distill it so that it's potent enough for you. To breathe it in. And my heart panics not to be as I long to be. And here is the line of lines the empty, waiting, pure, speechless receptacle. And there's no way to read that last line fast. There's no way to read that last line fast. The poem reads, like the flowing of the, of the breeze all the way through, the buzzing of the, of the green-headed fly, and Mary Oliver being important and trying to uphold her dignity. She can read books. She can write down words softly, like these. But finally, she writes, it comes down to something quite different. Who am I? Who are you? Who are you? Well, if you want to know, if you want to know, and you may not want to know, it might be scary, it might be disturbing, it might be too complicated, but if we want to find out about who we are, this is not a bad place to start. Don't tell me what you do in your life. Don't show me your academic degrees, or don't give me the anxiety that you don't have the academic degrees you thought you might have had. Don't tell me about your achievements. Don't tell me all the things you've done. 
Show me your emptiness. Show me the place where you are speechless. Show me your soul, which is not chattering, and it's not doing anything in particular. It's just being you, the empty, waiting, pure, speechless. And then that awkward word, a receptacle. You know, how do you, how do you pull that off at the end of a poem to say, basically, you're a receptacle? What is a receptacle? Yeah, and what, what's it good for? Holding things, right. You know, it, it, a, a cup can only be a cup if it's empty so that it can hold the liquid. The miracle of transubstantiation is that there is a chalice and there is a plate to hold the bread and to hold the wine. That's heretical, Michael. It's heretical, but let's just go with it. The miracle of you is that you're empty. It's your emptiness. It's that you are like a receptacle. You can hold things. You can open yourself to greet the world, to receive the world. And you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to wait and slow down to discover that about you. I have to discover that about me again and again. Because just when I think I get it, then I start to figure out what I should put into that receptacle to make it really important. Oh, how about some good wine? How about some transubstantiated wine? That's really big. But the miracle is that there's a chalice, an empty chalice, at the beginning of the liturgy of your life. The miracle is that you are an empty chalice at the beginning of your life, which is, by the way, today. Did you know that? It's the beginning of your life. Today. Right now. Right here. Today. A miracle is that you are empty, that you can be speechless, and that you can present yourself to the world, to your world, just like that. Let's close with a poem from one of my favorite theologians, Michael Lunig, or Lunig as he's known. He was just in the UK. I don't know if he got to, did he get here? Oh, he was up in Glasgow talking. I almost flew up just for him. I've never met him. He's an Australian. He's a cartoonist. Do you know Looney? Yeah. Oh, well, if you don't, write it down. Google him. You'll come up with his own website, and, and there's a cartoon for everything. He was asked, he was going through a really, really difficult time in his life in the late 80s, and the Melbourne Age, Took me a long time to figure out that was the name of a newspaper. When I first met Lunig that way, the Melbourne Age, I thought, what is the Melbourne Age? Right. You know that, the Melbourne Age. It's a big newspaper, right, Michael? Yeah. 
So they asked Looney if he would write a, a cartoon for every day. And, and he said, no, but I'll write a prayer. I'll give you a prayer. And so over the next uh, year or so, he, every week he submitted these little cartoon prayers. And I'm sorry I don't have the picture here because he has these little stick figures of a little man, often with a little duck. There's a little duck, right? Always with him. This little duck coming along. And uh, this is a beautiful one because it shows him, the little stick man, looking down with a little quizzical look on his face at a snail. At a snail who's just moving along. God, help us to live slowly, to move simply, to look softly, to allow emptiness, to let the heart create for us. Amen. Let's have lunch. We're going to begin. Uh, welcome back, by the way. I hope you had a wonderful lunch and um, a little chance to stretch. I open the windows up a bit. I'll close them again. We're going to start with a visual meditation at the beginning. And if there's anything that ought to awaken wonder in us, it's simply learning to look again at the things happening all around us in the world, in the earth, on this earth, which is a great gathering of wonders. And um, we're going to watch a short clip. It's about seven minutes long to uh, birds, but birds in a way that you've never seen a bird before. And you'll never look at a bird again. And that's something about what, what happens with wonder. Once you learn to see something in a new way, you never see it this, in the same way again. So these are things you've looked at a thousand times, maybe if you're old enough, 10,000 times, but you've never seen them or experienced them quite like this. So here we go. So one of the great gifts of photography is to give us moments of seeing things that we can't with our eye otherwise see, whether it's slow motion or whether just the moment of a photograph of an image, to see something in its stillness, to see the, the movements. I had never imagined that ducks walk on the water or geese when they take off, did you? I never knew that. You don't see it when you're watching them. You, you simply see them thrust that body somehow impossibly up into the air. But to imagine that each time they do that, they're stepping on the water, walking along to get the elevation. Beautiful. So we want to turn our thoughts to this theme of the open, which I mentioned comes from Rainer Maria Rilke, from one of the late elegies, where he begins to talk about this. And he means it in a very uncomplicated way that the open is possible for all of us all of the time. To live unfettered by our anxieties, by our prejudgments, our prejudices, whether it's for the natural world around us or the human world around us, to try to develop a kind of curiosity about the world we live in, which would be a fundamentally healthier way than suspicion or doubt or judgment. So 
again, we're thinking this afternoon now about wonder through the lens of this notion of the open. And I'd like to begin with another poem by Mary Oliver. So if you take out your sheet. And maybe if we could have the microphone for somebody to um, give this a reading for us. Who would like to read? Yes? Hold on, the microphone's coming. This is a poem, a book of poems written, written just after Mary Oliver had lost the, her partner, her lifelong partner, uh, Mary Malone Cook, to whom every book up until 2008 was dedicated. Uh, they lived together in Provincetown in a small house on the edge of the dunes by uh, a pine forest with a little lake. And here it is, I don't want to live a small life. I don't want to live a small life. Open your eyes, open your hands. I have just come from the very fields. The sun kissing me with its golden mouth all the way. Open your hands and the wind-winged clouds follow me along thinking perhaps I might feed them. But no, I carry these heart-shaped only to you. Look how many, how small, but so sweet, and maybe the last gift I will ever bring to anyone in this world of hope and risk. So do, look at me, open your life, Open your hands. Oh, thank you. That's a, such a remarkable opening of a poem. I don't want to live a small life. You? Anybody here? You want to live a small life? I don't know. I don't know anybody who does. And if you said that, it might be out of a sense of fear of being hurt or the remembrance of pain felt. But there's something in us that doesn't want to live a small life. We want to live into a large place in our lives. We want to live spaciously. We're made to live spaciously. Rilke used again and again the word Raum, R-A-U-M, which in German as in English has this double meaning. Raum is a room like this, but Raum also means space. It means space. It means space. We have Raum. I have room, right? Not I am in a room. How did it happen that those, that word carries both of those very different meanings in English, as in German? A Raum is something contained. This is a room, has walls, has ceiling, has a floor, and we're in it. But if you say, I need room in my life, I don't mean I need a room in my life. It means I don't want a room, I want room. I need to knock the walls down. I need to blow the ceiling out. I need to dig the, the, the underneath the, the flooring. I need space. And this is what this poem is about. There's something in us that wants, craves, needs, longs for space. The open. The open. And I, this is a wonderful poem. I mean, it could be almost a call to worship to me. You could read it as a call to worship. Well, not if you have the Book of Common Prayer, but 
if you're in you know, a sort of a renegade tradition where you can, you know, Cranmer wrote this all down himself back in the day, right? So you could write liturgy again. You could do liturgy again. And in my tradition, at least, in the Reformed tradition, we do write our own liturgies. I could imagine this as a call to worship. How would it be a call to worship? Open, I don't want to live a small life. Open your eyes. Open your hands. We're back with that same simple image. Open your hands. Open your hands. Somebody mentioned Henry Nouwen to me just before we left for lunch, a marvelous Dutch-American theologian who wrote a little book that changed my life when I read it. He wrote little books. He didn't write any compendious books. He wrote no thick, heavy theological books. He was a priest, Catholic priest. Taught at two of the greatest universities we could muster up, Harvard, Yale first, and then Harvard, and really was very unhappy teaching in the academic world. He felt always criticized by his peers, which he was. He just wrote little books, which people read, and it changed their lives. And most academics are incredibly jealous of that, to write a book that people are reading, that they have by their bedside, that's going to change their life forever. I remember meeting him for the first time. I was in graduate school, and I'd been reading him, and just so moved by his writings. And um, he was he was he was giving a speech uh, at a church, a Catholic church north of Philadelphia, and a bunch of us got in our car and we drove down to King of Prussia, this suburb of um, what a name, King of Prussia. It's the name of a town at the parish church there. I don't remember what, what it was called. It was a huge church, sort of built in the, in the rush of the post-Vatican II optimism, hopefulness of the Catholic Church, this massive church, and it was full. If there were a 1,000 people, uh, it might have been more than that. I don't know. We were all stacked in and waiting. And when Henry Nouwen came in and began to speak, I knew that he was only speaking to me but so did the other 999 people. <laughs> he had that charism. Did you study N-O-U-W-E-N. N-O-U-W-E-N. Henri, H-E-N-R-I, Nowen. Um, he wrote a little book, in, it must have been in the early 1980s, called With Open Hands, Changed My Life. It's beautiful, some of you know it. And in that little book, he describes I think at the very beginning, I don't remember where exactly, working as he did in a psychiatric hospital in New Haven, and a woman was brought in who was, you know, what we used to call deranged. She was having an episode and was hurting herself. So they brought her in, and um, she had these, her hands were tightly clenched. They just couldn't get her hands pried open. And, it's a long time since I've read this story, so it may be a little bit different in the book. But this is the way I remember it, that finally when they were able to get her hands open, they discovered that she just had a simple penny in her hand that she was holding on to as if her whole life depended on it. And now and use that image to talk about what our lives are like, that we're often holding on to things desperate, that if we let go of this one thing, we'll not be able to live. And for the most part, these are unessential things. The things that we cling to, thinking we, our life depends upon this, for the most part, are not very 
important after all. That image of that book with open hands is his way of saying this is what we're made to be. We're made to open our hands, to open our lives to the world. And this poem is a magnificent call to worship for you, to worship, to give worthfully by honoring your own life, first of all, before you try to do anything else. I don't want to live a small life. Open your eyes. Open your hands. I've just come from the berry fields. The sun kissing me with its golden mouth all the way. Open your hands. And the wind-winged clouds falling along, thinking perhaps I might feed them. But now I carry these heart shapes only to you. I suspect she's talking about the little blueberry, which if you look at it, it looks a little like the heart, a little round thing with the, you know what a blueberry looks like. Look how many, how small, but so sweet. Maybe the last gift I will ever bring to anyone in this world of hope and risk. So do. Look at me. Look at me. Now, if we were going to do this as a call to worship, when I say that, you're all looking down. Why are you looking down? Well, you're reading the poem. But you don't need to read the poem. Because what Mary Oliver is saying is, basically, don't look down. Don't read your way through life and miss the moment that's happening right now. Even if you're reading a good poem, set it down. Lift your eyes. Look. Look. Look around. Just take a moment. Look around. Look. Look. Oh, it's, it's a little risky. You may not know the person next to you. Look around. Look. Look around. Look around at these beautiful faces of people who've come from places we don't know. We don't know. And we're suddenly in this room together. And we'll never be here like this again. This precious moment. Look at me. Open your eyes. Open your hands. Look at me. Look at me. Look. Look. Again and again. The simple verb. Look. 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 Because you won't see anything if you never look. You won't see anything if you never look. And we have to learn over and over again to look spaciously to look receptively, to imagine that our life is an empty vessel, pure, speechless, waiting to be filled. What a call to worship this, this could be. Open your life, the last line. Open your life. Open your hands. I love this poem which has such a tenderness and such a directness. It doesn't need a long, complicated explanation at all, does it? It's not like a Rilke poem where you really have to read it through and think about the images. I imagine she's writing this for her beloved, someone she loves, someone she'd been picking blueberries for, thinking as she plucked each little berry from those low bushes, the wild blueberries of Cape Cod, each little berry Imagining a handful of these little sweet, these detonations of sweetness, these beautiful little explosions 
of flavor, and carrying them to give to someone. Look at me. Open your hands. Look at me. Open your hands. Yeah. Open your life. There it is. Without doing this, we'll never, we'll never wonder about anything. And, and sadly, we live so much of our lives caught in premature certainties. Let me just put it that way. In premature certainties about the people we live with, about the people we, we encounter, about the people we're afraid of, and also about the people we love. Premature certainties about who they are and about what they're possible of doing and being and, and discovering. And then one day, in a quiet moment, you notice somebody doing something you never imagined they would do. And maybe they were doing it all the time, but you never looked, and so you never saw. So I think wonder is also a way of we can invite ourselves and those around us to risk, to risk being who they are to risk discovering who they are, to risk discovering how they love and how they mourn, how they sing and how they dance, how they wait and how they long, how they pine, all those things that we're capable of doing. That in a way, we're here on this earth in this moment in part to help one another, not just to open my eyes and open my hand. This poem is not about that. It's open your eyes, open your hands, open your life. Tell me what it is you plan to do. This is a line from Mary Oliver with your one wild and precious life. Tell me, what is it? What is it you want to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's turn to the next page. And we're going to enter another poem layered, layered, layered with, with echoes. We're in a kind of echo chamber with good poets you know, I, I often have, I edit poetry for a couple of journals and for a small press in the States. I love doing it. It's wonderful working with established poets, with new poets, with people who think they're poets or wonder whether they might be poets. One such person wrote to Rainer Maria Rilke, a young man named Franz Kapus, who was 19, and he wrote to this established poet who was all of 26. Rilke was only 26 when he wrote 11 letters back to Franz Kapus, which became, published after Rilke's death, Letters to a Young Poet. So it's Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. And in the very first poem, Franz Kapus says, you know, I want to know if I'm a good poet. And I'm going to send you some poems. Tell me if I'm a good poet. And Rilke writes back and says, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you. You have to find out who you are. And if in the finding out of who you are, you find that you are called to, to be a poet. That's a wonderful thing. But I can't tell from, I can't judge your poems and tell you whether you're a poet. 
some of you will know that book. If not, put it on your list of things to read. Letters to a Young Poet. It's published in a dozen different translations, all of them, I think, decent enough. A remarkable collection of letters. One of the first places I met Rilke, when I was in my teenage years, somebody gave me this. It's a book about wondering about all the great things of life. Love, loss, sex, death, hope, fear, anxiety, all the things. It's all there. Anyway, I digress. Oh, taste and see. Uh, but really good. What I ask people when they come to me and say, you know, um, am I poet? I, I, the first thing I will all, almost always ask people is, who, who are you reading? What poets are you reading? Whom are you reading? I guess you should say in proper English. Whom are you reading? Because I don't know any, any poet worth their weight in poetry who's not reading poems of other people. Can you imagine a composer not listening to any music because she was sure that the only music that mattered was hers? No, it's ridiculous. Of course not. We live in the arts in conversation with other arts, artists, and with their art. And this is a poem that lives in conversation with other poems, including right off the bat, the title, Oh, Taste and See. And what do you hear? Yes, Psalm 34, Oh, Taste and See that the Lord is Good. So, you know, she doesn't have to say that. She would now these days if you were teaching undergraduates, I'm afraid. You'd have to have a footnote there. This is Psalm 34. And then you'd have to say, the Psalms are in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and then you'd have to say, it was written a long time ago, and then you'd have to say, and it's still important. Oh, taste and see. Who is Denise Levertov? British? British. Um, she was born and grew up here. Russian Orthodox father, Jewish mother. I think that's the way it is, yes. She immigrated to the United States and spent her life living in the US and teaching in various places for many years in the East Coast in a place near Boston called Medford at a university called Tufts in the 1950s and 60s. And she became very involved in the struggle for civil rights and the struggle for integration. She was a protest poet in her early years. She always wrote with its deep, acute conscience about the way the world could be, might be, should be, and not simply the way it is. And eventually came back to her faith, if she ever left it. I don't think we ever leave faith, but she came back in a very deliberate way uh, and eventually became a Roman Catholic in the, in the last part of her life. The world is not with us enough. Who do you hear there? It's a sonnet. It's old. It's from the early 1800s. It's from William's word, William Wordsworth. The world is too much with us. The world is too much. You know how it goes? We lay waste. We lay waste. There it is. The world, thank you. That's a miracle. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And it goes on. And what's Wordsworth lamenting? He's writing in the late 1700s, early 1800s. 
he's lamenting. What's he lamenting? Well, it's beginning. And this, this hungering to, to get and to have. And of course, it's in a way a poem written by somebody living in relative luxury who had, in a world of real poverty, in an England of real poverty, he had more than most people ever could imagine having. But the desire to have was becoming stronger and stronger. And he knew that we gave something precious away if we devoted ourselves only to consuming, to having, acquiring. So that's in the background, too. We have the, a psalm, and we have William Wordsworth, whom everyone, at least up until the, I think in the States at least, until the 1970s, would have memorized that sonnet as I did in middle school. Did you memorize it? You did. I know you did memorize it. Tell me your name. Your name? Ruth memorized it. Did you memorize it in school, Ruth? Yes. Was it an assignment that you had to memorize this? They were set works for A level. I suppose they still might be, I don't know. They were set works for A level. And it stayed with you. And what a wonderful thing that that poem has stayed with you. And in a sense, if you have to read this poem with a footnote to Wordsworth, it's going to miss a lot. Because Denise Levertov is catching us by surprise. Because she, you start off, the world is not with us enough. There's an argument going on. What do you mean the world is not? I thought the world was too much with us. That's what Wordsworth wrote. The world is too much with us. And she's saying, no, the world is not with us enough. And what's she meaning by that? She's meaning, well, let's see what she means. Oh, taste and see the subway, subway Bible posters said. You know, those, it's evangelism in the subway in Boston. That some evangelical group had put up a poster that said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, repent and believe the good news. And avoid hell, by the way, because that's not pretty. All those things. And don't have too much fun, because having fun probably isn't part of holiness. At least that's the kind of message that's undergirding the way Denise Levertov is reading that sign and reading American culture in this particular time, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Meaning, the Lord, or I should say this in the proper way, meaning, the Lord, the Lord, right? I was always amazed. I went to seminary, to graduate school, and we all began seminary saying, God, and God said, and God did, and God said. But by the end of the first semester, the infection had started, and God said, <laughs> and God, the Lord. You know, I can't do it. You need an English accent. Who can do this? And the Lord said. Yeah? You kind of hear that. It adds a little bit of authority, right? Well, it's ridiculous. But in a way, that's what she's really looking at. This notion that to be religious means to be heavy, to be without humor, without fun for sure, no dancing, right? No liquor, no straying to the edges, stay in your place, pray diligently, memorize scripture, and don't have fun.
meaning if anything. And then one of the best lines in modern poetry, all that lives to the imagination's tongue. I love that line. That could be the line for the day. What is wonder? It's being aware of all that lives to the imagination's tongue. Did you know that the imagination had a tongue? Did you know that? Did you know that? I, I didn't know that before I read this poem. Now I can't think of the imagination without a tongue. Because I love this poem. It's in me now, the way Wordsworth is in you, Ruth, and the way, actually, the psalm may be in you from your early years or from your current years. Oh, taste and see, the Subway Bible poster said, meaning the Lord. That's what it meant. You know that. The evangelistic cause was repent, turn away from the world. And that's the language I grew up with hearing in my evangelical circles. Turn away from the world, right? Be in the world, but not of it. It's always quoted as a Bible verse. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the second century. But the notion is there. I am not of this world, says Jesus in the fourth gospel. What would it mean not to be of the world, really? Denise Levertov is saying, you know what? As long as we're visiting in this life, you might as well actually be part of this world because it's what God has given you. God has given you this world, this body, this imagination, this capacity to wonder. Oh, and by the way, we didn't even think at the beginning that wonder in English, a little different in German, in English can be a verb. You can turn it into a verb in German, but in English it is a verb or a noun, depending on how it's used. I wonder. I wonder. And when I say that, what, am I, what, am I, what happens when you hear that? I wonder. What, what happens? What am I, what's going on? I'm thinking, trying to find out, what are you, question mark, question mark, what, speculating, reflecting, the imagination, you're opening yourself, you don't know, and perhaps among the most important spiritual gifts that can lead us farthest on the royal road of our own life is unknowing, it's practicing unknowing. Practicing unlearning what we thought was true about ourselves. Some of us will have a really hard time with that because we learned a lot of things that were really difficult, burdens, burdensome about ourselves. We were told that we couldn't, that we shouldn't, that we mayn't do that or do this or do the other thing, that we weren't allowed to imagine a, a certain career or weren't allowed to imagine falling in love with a certain person. All of those things that we were told we couldn't. And to wonder is to call that into question, to say, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah, re or unprogramming. First of all, simply unprogramming. First of all, simply unlearning or unknowing, the cloud of unknowing. What a marvelous book, the cloud of unknowing, that's so essential for our own journey of, of heart and mind and soul and strength is to unknow things we thought we had to know in a certain way. 
to unknow to the point that we give room for the other to be genuinely other. Some of you will have been so certain about what God looked like that if my daughter, if you heard my daughter say God is black, you would probably have thought she needed psychiatric help. <laughs> you know. Some of us might have thought that. Perhaps that was never your issue. That you could always imagine that there was no gradation of value between black and white. Even though we live in a culture where that where racial categories have been permanently etched into evil and good, black and white. In the old days, I grew up on westerns, as you might have. And what did the bad guys wear? Black hat. And what did the white guys, the good guys wear? White hats, right? They were all white. They were all white. I mean, there weren't any black people in the movies back then. They were all white, which is another problem. But the bad ones were always in black. Why was that? Because we, we carried over our prejudices about race into the very ordinary world of good and evil, of right and wrong. So we have a lot of re unlearning to do, unknowing to do. So it's not just reprogramming, unprogramming, first of all. We need to unprogram. There's a poem about unprogramming. Okay. The Lord, oh, taste and see, the Subway Bible poster said, meaning the Lord. Meaning, if anything, and you hear, the, the, there's a hinge in the poem, right there. Every good poem that has any kind of narrative structure is going to have a hinge in it. It's going to have a hinge. It's going to take you down one path, and then it's going to turn you into another path. It's going to startle you and take you down another path. The good narrative poems, modern poems, will always have a hinge. And here's the hinge. Meaning, if anything, all that lives. All that lives. All that lives. All that lives to the imagination's tongue. Oh, wait a minute. All? Yes, all. All that lives. And then she gives this strange litany of things that live to the imagination's tongue. And if you can remember Sesame Street, one of these things doesn't belong, one of these things doesn't go together. Remember that little song and they'd show you like two apples and a peanut. <laughs> you know, like a, a, an apple, an orange, and a tricycle. To teach children how to group things. To teach children how to, how to associate things. Right? Well, look at this list. Grief, mercy, language, tangerine, excuse me, tangerine, weather, to breathe them, bite, savor, chew, swallow, transform into our flesh, our deaths, crossing the street, plum, quince, living in the orchard, and being hungry, and plucking the fruit. Ah, where are we now? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. I mean, sure, I mean, you, you hear an echo of that, right? Don't go to those trees. And after all, these are the trees that everybody's going to go to. Really? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Not to eat from that? Really, the tree of life? Not to eat from that tree? Those trees are forbidden to us. Adam, 
and Eve, Adam and Eve. What a great story. These are the things we, of course, need to know about to become human. And Adam and Eve, this is not history. This is not even really myth. This is ancient story. But if Adam and Eve had not tasted of those fruits, they would have remained forever unknowing of anything, of anything. So this text that we Christians, Jews, don't read it that way. They don't read it as the fall story. They read it as a, a sort of coming-of-age story. Of course, we're going to resist someone telling us we can't eat these most natural things. Of course, we must disobey. The child must disobey the parent to grow up. A child who is never allowed to disagree with her, his mother, father, will remain forever an infant, infantilized. So there's so much in this poem. But I want to think about all that lives to the imagination's tongue. Just that phrase, all that lives to the imagination's tongue. And this long list, maybe, you know, maybe where, again, if, if you're doing, uh, thinking about carrying something from this retreat home to work on it, just come to that point, all that lives to the imagination's tongue, and spend a long afternoon just writing down the things that need to live to your imagination's tongue. Some things you like and some things you don't. Some things that are really beautiful and some things like grief that are difficult. But that need to be discovered by the imagination if you want to really know what they are and really who you are. Who you are. I want to know who you are. I have to know about the tongue of your imagination, the thing that tastes, that shapes sound, that is so essential in the very ordinary things that we do. And she gives us a little list of things. What do we do with our tongues, with our mouths? We want to breathe these things. We want to bite them, savor them. What kind of a, what is savor as a word? It's a taste, but it's, a, it's more than a taste. What kind of a taste is it? Really appreciating something, right? It's really taking time. It's really, you know, when, when you, it's not, it's not fast food we're talking about here. It's slow food. There's a whole movement of slow food, of slow living. It's not a bad thing to practice. You know, my mother at least told me, Mark, don't eat so fast. I heard that so many times. Mark, chew your food before you swallow it, you know? Because she watched me eat. I was just a normal boy. I wanted to get out and play. You know, food was like, I had to get this done. And it, when you're young, that's okay. But as you get older, you realize what a gift it is to be able to actually savor what's in front of you. And it's not just about how good it tastes. It's about how you taste it. See the difference? Oh, some food is easy to savor, but everything that's edible can be savored. It's a way of respecting it. Somebody said appreciation. It's opening yourself to the gift of flavor, the discovery of flavor. Yeah, it's savoring. And it could be something you've tasted a thousand times. 
But, you know, some of you are old enough to remember, well, my father used to tell me this at least, that, you know, he grew up in the Depression. Uh, none of you is that old. But you will have had parents who grew up in the Depression, and they will have told you what it was like, perhaps, to have in their Christmas stocking, or however things were delivered from Santa Claus in your day to your house, we had stockings. Do you have stockings? Yeah. And my father, there was always an orange in our stocking. And I thought this was so ridiculous, because there were like bags of oranges always in the, in the kitchen. We had oranges all the time. But I remember my father saying, Mark, the reason I'm giving you this orange, I must have been six, seven or eight complaining. Dad, couldn't you put something better in there? You know, I knew it wasn't Santa. Couldn't you deliver something better? Because there are 30 of them in the bag in the kitchen. He would say, Mark, when I was your age, if we had one orange in the winter, that was a gift. And so I, I, I received an orange, and I knew it was a great gift because I never tasted oranges. We didn't have oranges. They weren't available. And they, we didn't have money to buy them. That's savory. If you know that you, you'd only have one orange all winter, and that came to you at Christmas time, and maybe that was true for you, how would you eat it? Really slowly. You'd probably just have one taste at a time. Maybe you'd parcel it out. You know, you'd have one piece today, and then you'd save the next piece for tomorrow. I don't know how you do it. But the chances are you'd make it as long and delightful. You'd prolong the delight as long as you could. And in a way, that's always, it's not a task. It's an invitation to us to know that this conversation that I might have tonight with my mother might be the last time I talk to her or you with a neighbor, or seeing something you love, or going someplace you love. You don't know if you'll ever go back. When you're 20, you imagine that things are eternal, that you'll always have the chance. But as we grow older, we realize how precious every moment always was, but now all the more so, right? Savor. All in the word savor. To bite, to savor to chew, not to bite, to chew, to savor, no, to bite, to savor, to chew, to swallow, and this wonderful image to transform into our flesh, our deaths. What can that mean? To transform into our flesh, our deaths. What do you think? How do we transform our deaths? It's incredible. Why? A disappointment? Yeah, could be. There is no right answer here. They're probably better and less good, but yes, our disappointments. What else? It's perishable. It's perishable, perishable things in our lives. What else? The wholeness of life coming around. I mean, there, the reason that you're eating an orange is because you've taken it from the tree. It's died. It's given its life. In a sense, it's no longer alive at that point. And when you take it, if you realize that, that in a way, the tree has given a sacrifice for you. Oh, we think of sacrifice as something very human, an act of will. Well, I don't know that it needs to be that way only. That when a tree yields its fruit, when an animal gives its life, 
for the earth. There is a gift to be reverently received, to be graciously received. Maybe, sure, right. If the, if, the, if the orange fell to the ground, it might grow another tree. That's right. You, 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 know, you preempted that. Unless you spit the seeds out and take them out. Yes. Actually, the seeds will continue to grow. You wonder how plants get to remote places, like on the cliffs of... You know, I was just observing this in uh, walking in a very rugged part of Iona, and on these cliffs there are plants growing. How do they get there? Oh, they were carried by the wind or by the birds, more likely. Right? The birds ate the, ate the berry, and the berry went through the bird, and the berry was left by the bird. I'm saying that so politely. And right there, a little plant eventually took root. Well, you know, there, there's, that's beautiful. And there's, I think, a dimension of this poem that I'd never thought about. But I think it's there. And the poet never knows the depth of the wisdom of the poem she writes, never, ever knows it. This is an example of that. Crossing the street, you know, transgressing, going across, that's all the word transgressing means, to cross over, to cross over the street, to go to the other side, where maybe you were told you couldn't go, or you feared that you couldn't go, or you were afraid to go, to cross over the street, and to and then this list of things, plum, quince, living in the orchard and being hungry and plucking the fruit. Turn the next page. We'll read one more short poem of Rilke, another sonnet, Two Orphans, which is, I think, the answer to this poem. I mean, in a way, it's a conversation with this poem. I like the way Kate, you put these together. They kind of look at each other here. If you hold them open, they look at each other. Becoming Nameless is my title. And I wonder if we could have the microphone have somebody read this for us. Could somebody... Give us a read, yeah. Becoming nameless. And, and, and we need to leave spaces where Rilke gives these ellipses, these three, sometimes he uses four. He uses lots of dashes in the sonnets, lots of ellipses to, to say, slow down, don't hurry. Discover what's between the words here, okay? Becoming nameless. Ripe apples, bananas, and pears gooseberries. All this gives voice to death and life. I sense an intuition. I sense an intuition. It's a wonderful line. It's kind of an aside. You know in theater, the aside, where the actor comes over to the side, I sense an intuition, <laughs> right? And then steps back and is in role again, right? I mean, you know, you just have to love that in Shakespeare. This, this, the private moment where the actor is able to leave the actress for a moment, the official role, and say something, I sense an intuition, right? Try it again, start again, beautifully read. Ripe apples, bananas and pears, gooseberries. All this gives voice to death and life. I sense an intuition. Read this on a child's face when she tastes this. For this comes from afar. Are you becoming nameless, slowly, on your lips? Discoveries flow now where words once were, freed unexpectedly from the hold of fruit's flesh. Dare to say what is you speak of as apple? 
the sweetness that finally comes forth, shaped quietly in the tasting, in order to clarify, awake, and clear the fullness, sunny, earthy, present, oh, experience, sensation, joy, immense. Wow, okay, great. This is a poem that, you know, we'll read it a few more times, and we'll, we'll, we'll risk opening ourselves more and more to the audacity of the poem. It's an audacious poem. And it really is a kind of answer to the poem about tasting and seeing. How will you taste and see? Well, maybe, maybe you'll do it by looking at a child eat for the first time a gooseberry. What does a gooseberry taste like? What's going to happen to the face? Whoa! I mean, ripe apples, bananas, and pears, and you're thinking, oh, so sweet, so succulent. You can imagine a really ripe pear and a child is bitten in, and, and, and the, 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 the juice is running down her face, and she's so happy. And she's picking it up and smashing it into her mouth. And then you give them a gooseberry. <sighs> All this gives voice to death and life, to death and life. We've been talking, why death and life? Oh, the, the fruit is no longer alive. But it is alive. It is alive. It gives itself in a way, if we can speak this way, in the, in the way we receive it. I sense an intuition. Read this on a child's face when she tastes this. For this comes from afar. What does he mean there? Oh, probably not the gooseberry. It could come from the back garden. The pear could come from the garden, not the banana. The apple could come, but the banana, no. The banana is not coming from Prague, where Rilke grew up, or from, even from Switzerland where he was living when he wrote this poem, the French Baron, the French canton of Switzerland. Are you becoming nameless now on your lips? What do you say? What do you think? Are you becoming nameless now on your lips? What do you think? How, how do you become nameless? You're eating fruit? You're eating fruit. Your taste. You're all taste. You're all taste at that moment. You're completely involved in tasting. You, you don't need a name anymore. I don't need Mark S. Burroughs. That's a big name. You know, it has lots of things that you could say about behind that name. Or, you know, anybody here. No. No, if you're involved in tasting, you're not naming yourself anymore. You're, you're so given over to the moment, the wonder of tasting this piece of fruit, which has given itself for you. Discoveries flow now where words once were. Yes? Yes, sure. Yes, this part of you is still there. But probably it's not, I am tasting the fruit, it's I am tasting the fruit. If it's really an experience that overwhelms you, where it's the first banana that you've ever had, like a child, or the first time you've eaten a really ripe pear, a child. A child. 
And you know, these are such common things. Even in Rilke's day, the banana was not that uncommon. It didn't grow locally, but bananas are one of the fruits that do travel fairly well, fairly easily, and would have been transported to Europe during his lifetime, the 1920s, for Europeans to buy something that they could never see in their back garden, a banana, alongside the apple, alongside the pear and the gooseberry. Discoveries flow now where words once were, where once we thought we needed to own the world with language. Now we're simply experiencing the world without language, immediately, which is the way children first experience the world. Before they know that this thing is a pear, they bite into it at a year and a half, at 18 months, and you see the joy on their face to taste the sweetness of this succulent fruit. I'm not talking about the kind of pear you buy at Sainsbury's, or what's it called? The stores? Sainsbury's? Sainsbury's? You know, the pears that are hard. They've been, you know, and you have to put it on the shelf for three weeks before it ripens up. No, the kind that you would go out and pick warm in a late fall day right from the tree with that warmth of the late afternoon sun and you bite into it and it is a revelation. Discoveries flow now where words once were, freed unexpectedly from the hold of fruit's flesh. A revelation right there, a revelation right in that moment. Dare to say what it is you speak of as apple. How would you say that? Well, Rook in another poem says, dance the orange. That's the admonition. How would you dance the orange? I don't know, but I'd love to try. Could we try it together? Could we try that? Imagine, okay, we turn off the lights and we'll all look the other way. <laughs> so nobody will see me dancing the orange. But imagine that might be something we could try to dance the orange. And we would hold the orange, perhaps, and we would let our bodies give form in the flow of our limbs to what it is we experience of the orange. The sweetness that finally comes forth, shaped quietly in the tasting, in order to clarify, awake and clear, the fullness, sunny, earthy, present, Oh, experience, sensation, joy, immense. I think that's how it has to be read, right? You, were, you did a beautiful reading, by the way. And I've seen this poem more than once, so I knew where it was going. But in a way, you have to build a crescendo up at the end. Oh, the fullness, sunny, earthy, present. Oh, experience, oh, erfahrung. Sensation, joy, immense! Exclamation point. Never use an exclamation point in a poem. My creative writing teacher would say to you, never use an exclamation point in a poem. Never. You can't do this. Rilke does. But when he uses it, you know he's actually saying something more than, I just wrote something nice. He's saying, give it gusto, which simply means, taste it. Gusto. Taste it, right? Taste it. Let it go. Oh, it's a great poem. What does it mean to be alive? Here, ripe apples, bananas, pears, gooseberries, all this gives voice to death and life. I sense 
an intuition. I sense something, I'm, I'm glimpsing something important. Not about the fruit, and not even about me, but about life and death. Nothing less than that. This is about death and life, as he puts it, not life and death, death and life. That's the best sequence, death and life. If there's anything at the heart of the early Christian imaginings, it was that death comes first. When Paul talks about baptism, what does he say? Baptism is beautiful babies wrapped up in beautiful clothing, brought and sprinkled by the priest at the altar with a few beautiful words, and the family's going to have a beautiful event afterwards, and it's going to be just a beautiful time. No, he says, we've died with Christ. You have died with Christ so that you might be raised up with Christ. Romans 6, I didn't make this up. It's there. If anything, this is this belongs to the earliest Christian glimpsing of what our life is all about, that death comes first and life comes second. That there is always the deaths in our life open us to the greater life that we could not glimpse or would not glimpse without it. Read into that the difficult narratives that you've known in your own life or in the life of others. And you realize what an incredible, dramatic gift the Christian story is. Not the only good one, not the only dramatically good one, but it's incredible. The sweetness that finally comes forth, shaped quietly in the tasting, or experience, sensation, joy, immense. We need to take a break. Let's pause for 10 minutes if we can. If we only have till 4, we'll come back in 10 minutes, have a short tea break, and we'll continue on. Thanks. I want to, we, we're going to close in half an hour and have meditation at the end, as we always do. So what I regret is that, oh, that's, that's beautiful. Thanks. The, the days are always so compressed, and um, it's been uh, it's been such a gracious time. Thank you for the generosity you've brought to receiving these poems and entering into them. I'm sorry we're so large a group that we can't sort of break into small groups and have more conversation, but but there it is. I want to begin with um, a very short clip. It's uh, four minutes long, as a way of entering our last segment here and nowing. This is my own word made up in the spirit of, of Rilke, who made words up, made things up, as you can in German. Because if wonder is about anything, it's about being in the here and now. Not in our fantasies, not in our idealizations, not in our wishful thinking or our wistful thinking. It's being right here, right now, the way it is. And I want to start with one of the greatest four minutes in cinematic history. Did you know that you were going to get that? The greatest four minutes in cinematic history is the very last scene in Charlie Chaplin's great film, The Last Silent That He Made, City Lights. Some of you will remember this. I'll tell you very briefly the story. Charlie Chaplin is a tramp, a homeless guy, a beggar, and he meets this beautiful young woman who every day is at the same corner selling flowers to raise money to keep her mother alive. She's taking care of her mother, and she's blind. She can't see anything. And 
he sees her and, and arranges to, to find enough money to give her some money and to take a flower every day. And he tries to arrange it eventually. There's a lot of humor, Charlie Chaplin humor, of course. He waits until a car pulls up and opens the door and closes the door, and then he presumes, lets her presume that that's his car, that the driver has let him off. She can't see. And then she, he gives her the money, presses it into her hand, touches her hand, and then she takes the rose. And he just loves her, adores her. And eventually he meets this rich guy who's a drunk. And uh, in a drunken stupor, Charlie Chaplin helps him. And the man gives him a vast amount of money uh, uh, in thanks. But when he sobers up, he decides that, Ch that Charlie Chaplin has robbed him. But before the man finds him again, he takes all the money because he's read that there's a, an, a, an operation for people with cataracts. It's actually true that happened in the 1930s. People born with cataracts from birth who could never see could have their cataracts healed. And so he sends her, takes all of the money, and sends her to Vienna to have this, this healing. Well, while she's there, he's thrown in jail and spends years in jail because he's been accused of being a thief. And when he gets out, this is the last scene. He's going to meet this woman who now has her sight, and she's now working as a very, at a very tony, do you say that in British English? It's a very chic store on the chic store on the high street, right? In New York, where this is set. And they meet each other through the glass. She sees him for the first time, but she doesn't see him. Here's the ending. Oh, extraordinary. Really one of the most remarkable moments in, in film. The silences and the recognition, and in a way, this is really, this is, you can see now. I mean, the double entendres again. Yes, now I can see. Now she could see. And in, in a way, I think that image of what it is to look again, to learn to see, to look and see again for the first time, is what this movie is all about, this film. About learning to look beyond our prejudices, beyond our premature certainties, about ourselves and about other people, about ourselves and about other people, and giving space to discover the world, to discover the world that's right in front of us. Not the, the one we're going to go for a long adventure to visit, but the one that's the long adventure is right here, right now in the ordinary, here and nowing. So this is the last segment of the afternoon, is really, what does it mean to live in the here and now? Let's begin with a poem that this comes from a book um, that my colleague, John, friend, John Sweeney, and I wrote. came out about two years ago, Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul. This is. Um, these aren't really translations, they're revoicings of Eckhart. They all come, the poems, little poems, have come from the writings of this most remarkable, well, we call him a mystic. I would simply call him a prophet, a prophetic thinker, a thinker who dared to imagine God beyond God. That's his language, to, to kill God so that we could learn to know God. 
to let go of God. Well, like the, the old saying, if you see the Buddha on the, the Buddha on the road, kill him, right? If you see the Buddha and think that that's the source of your own holiness, your own whatever, it's not. You have to do that work yourself. So this is don't work so hard. At the heart of things is an eternal present moment. And that's Eckhart. That's all there is. An eternal present moment, not just the present moment. Eckhart would say it's an eternal present moment. Why is it eternal? Because this moment contains everything that was. Biologists would say that's true. Physicists would say this is true. The present moment is a gathering of everything, the billions of years from stardust to your body. It's in you. Everything. The entire drama of the cosmos is in each one of us. We are living, not witnesses to it, because we don't witness it. We carry it. We carry it. And we give our lives to all that will come after us. When the molecules of our body will be broken down and will find their way back into the circle of life. That's just the truth. Yeah, recycling in a way. The eternal present moment. At the heart of things is an eternal present moment, which is in each and every thing that is. And in me, and in you. And when we let ourselves come into an awareness of this now, we come to know ourselves, and this is Eckhart's phrase, as a becoming new without renewal. We're always becoming new. He said it's not a renewal. No, we're becoming new in every moment. That's true. He never knew this about our bodies, but the cells in your body right now are multiplying, right? Some are wearing out and some are being born again. In your skin, in your fingernails, in your hair. Some of you have beautiful hair left, I don't have much. In the organs in your body. Everything but the brain cells don't replicate. Everything else is constantly renewing. We are a becoming new without renewal. And this is the truth beyond all our worries and needs and hopes, this one eternal present moment. That's sheer Eckhart. But I think it's a wonderful way of beginning our last session to think about our work is to live in the here and now, but to realize that this here and now is full of all that was. And it's full in anticipation of all that will be all that will be, that is not yet here. That in a way, all our lives are poised at this hinge between the past in its vastness back to whatever it means to talk about a beginning. I don't know, do you? Can you tell me what the beginning means? I don't know. Well, if there's a Big Bang, but what was before that? Is there a before? Can we talk about a before? Maybe this is just one universe of many universes. Maybe. Yeah, what was there before God? It's an interesting question. So in a sense, this, this immensity before us, in, behind us, 
and the immensity before us all are alive in this here and now, right now, in this present now. Let's hold that thought. We're going to look at one more poem. Oh, this is also a poem of mine, and then finally we'll end with the wild geese. I don't know if here and nowing works as a word. I'm not really sure. To think of, of things that are not verbs and to turn them into verbs, to turn them into a gerund. I love gerunds. Gerunds are just fun, right? To turn nouns into verbs, journeying knowing. What does a gerund do? It has a sense of ongoingness, right? When you put an ing in English onto a verb, you give it a sense of continuation, thinking. It's not what I thought or what I will think, thinking. It's entering into the stream in the middle of things and knowing that there's been something before and there's something will come later, but you're in the middle of it, in medius race, in the middle of the thing. So here and now, and I don't know, maybe you'll just say, that's ridiculous, but maybe it'll stick. Maybe, you know, when Webster's eighth new international comes out, there will be a verb called here and nowing, and we'll have a little footnote. There was this retreat at the Meditatio Center in 2019, and this word appeared. And it was in print for the first time. And, and you know, now it's become, who knows? It might happen. It might happen. I like it. Here and now. We should be more about this in our lives. Because most of us are about there and thening. There and thening. Or there in the future. How do you do it in the future? I don't know. There and... Next thing. Oh, I love it. Thank you. What's your name? You're, I've got a foot, footnote you. There and, because there can go either way. There and nexting. There and thening and there and nexting. Beautiful. So let's put those two words there because in a way, we're always tempted toward there and thening and there and nexting. Right? We are. We spend so much of our energy reliving what we did badly or what someone else did badly or what we should have done better or what they should have done better, if only. Or, or we push it into the future. If only I had X, Y, Z. If only I were X, Y, Z. And we fail to live in the here and now. We fail to do this most essential part of what it is to be human creatures, which is most essential is to here and now our lives, the here and nowing of our lives. So let's look at one more poem. I'm always a little um, reluctant to read my own poems because people will say, well, what did you mean? And all I can say is I'm not sure where the poem came from. But it's a, it's a poem that has to do with trees. And as I collected this, this volume of poems that was published last year, I was surprised to see how many trees appear in the poems. I never thought that trees were that important to me, but I think they really are at some deep subliminal place. Maybe because I read Rilke, and Rilke, is, his poems are full of trees. They're full of trees. The first poem, somebody has a, a copy of the sonnets. Does somebody still have that in their hands? No? 
Well, let me take this. It's back here. Yep. It's to get the German. How could you start a poem with this? Da stieg ein Baum. There a tree rose up. There a tree rose. That's the beginning of the first sonnet. What would you, how could, that's a, not a very auspicious beginning of a poem. And then it goes on. Oh, reine Übersteigung. Oh, pure rising up over. How are you going to translate that? It's pretty hard going. It's a poem about a tree rising above itself. And then it follows with this marvelous line, O Orpheus singt. O Orpheus is singing. And it envisions Orpheus. You know who Orpheus was? He's this sort of god between the earth and the heavens, who in one of the stories, in Ovid, we have a version of it, who loses his beloved Eurydice to the netherworld. And the gods allow him to go to woo her back with one condition. Remember what it is? If he turns around in bringing her up, he loses her forever. He'll never see her again. And so he goes down, and he begins to play his lyre, and he begins to sing love songs to woo her, and she hears him, and she comes. And as the story goes, step by step, up he goes, Eurydice is there, and just at the place of crossing over, he turns in a moment of doubt, not knowing if she's there, and she's gone forever. This is the one Bielke writes poems to. The most agonizing story of loss in our literature, the tenderest expression of the sacrifice of love that we have, one of them, among them. And Christians made of Orpheus a kind of Christ-like figure who sacrificed everything for the one he loved. So there's a long tradition of Christianizing Orpheus. Well, Rilke would have none of that. He thinks the story is enough on its own. But he's writing these love poems, which they are really, to the one who loved so deeply, but in a moment of doubt, lost everything. And there's Orpheus singing. And this is, this is the image that one of his Rilke's uh, lovers at the end of his life gave him a copy of this. It's a 15th century uh, engraving of Orpheus singing, playing his lyre, and the animals are listening to him. They're coming out of the forest. And the very first poem is about that. The animals are coming up to listen to him sing. Because he's living in the here and now. He's creating, he's wooing them. You know, you can't woo in the past. And you can't woo in the future. You can only woo in the present. You can only express your love in the present. It's all we've got. And it's so precious to do it. We fail, we miss, we find reasons to avoid, to evade, to ignore, to delay, when we could be loving now, here and now. That's what these poems are about. Well, here's a little poem about trees, which might awaken in us a sense of what it is that each of us is called to be in our lives. And I'd love to hear somebody else read this. And we, we talked about this Benedictine notion of stability of place, which if any creatures or living beings in the world exemplify this, 
I'd say the trees have as good a chance at heroism as any of us. The trees keep a vigilant obedience to gravity and to the certainties of place. They imagine no journey, no going, forth at all, yet each calls silently. To those who walk idly among them, in the wisdom of their season play, they don't reason as we do, but in their listening might well wonder, what is it that presses us and keeps us in our hurried pace? Oh, thank you. What is it that presses us? So what is it that presses you? So we're back where we began this morning. My life is not this steep hour in which you see me hurrying. So your life is not that. Your life is not that. It's something else. Trees don't think about this. As far as we know, trees don't think at all, although we do now know that trees communicate with each other. They do it in a subterranean sense. They're, there's a chemical exchange in the roots of trees. They warn each other of things. Did you know that? No way everybody knows that. No? Yes. It's just a stunning thing. It's really a stunning thing. There's a little book written a few years ago called, the, I think it's called The Hidden Life of Trees or something. Secret Life of Trees. Oh, it's an amazing book. In a way, you know, we don't, we don't really begin to know what's going on in the world that we're, that, that's, that we're in the middle of. And trees are something that very few of us think about at all. We just, they're there, right? Keeping to themselves. But they're busy. They're busy being trees. They're busy being here and now and communicating and living through the seasons and sacrificing and continuing on. The trees keep a vigil. Such a great word. A vigil. What is a vigil? It's a watching. They're watching. They're waiting. It's in the monastic world, in the Benedictine world, when, when does vigils happen? In yeah, the middle of the night. I mean, the Cistercians still pray vigils at three in the morning. In the middle of the night, you rise and you pray to God. You pray the Psalms. And the Cistercians still keep their vigil prayer in the middle of the night. Prime is at the daybreak. And then law, terse, and so on. Sex, lauds, none, vespers, compline. Those are the rhythms of the seven times of prayer. The vigils happen in the middle of the night. And in a way, you know, if you've never been in a monastery, and some of you probably have been in Cistercian communities, and you've risen for prayer, it's a very powerful thing. One of the poems in that little book of mine is, I wrote it at Gethsemane, the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton spent his life as a Cistercian. And um, it was such a powerful thing to be in that old church with those old beams at three in the morning as the monks shuffled in, in walkers, in wheelchairs, some of them still ambulant, and we gathered to chant the night songs as if it really mattered. And just think about how I just said that, as if it really mattered. We don't know what really matters, but we prayed as if it mattered. And 
we were carried by the prayer as if it had mattered over centuries and millennia that monks have been praying prayers in the middle of the night, the vigil. So the trees keep a vigil. They keep their own vigil in obedience to gravity. They're not going anywhere. And the certainties of place. They're, they're not wondering about why they're here and not there. They can't ask that question. They simply accept it. As monks, when they enter, and this was very much as a monastic poem, I would say, when you enter a monastic community, you don't become a Benedictine in the Benedictine order. You, you join Glastonbury Abbey. You join Downside Abbey. You join a particular community. And you promise to be there until they bury you there. That's what it means to be a Benedictine or a Cistercian. And in the old days, most of the monks would never leave. They would never leave. If they did, they'd go by twos, and they'd have to come back. But most monks meant they would spend their entire life in that place, as most people did in England and in most other European countries. You stayed in the village where you were born. And maybe you would go to the next village if they had a market. Or maybe you would go to the big city. But that would be it. You'd come home again. Trees keep a vigil in obedience to gravity and the certainties of place. They imagine no journey, no going forth at all. Yet each calls silently to those who walk idly among them in the wisdom of their season play. Do trees do this? Sometimes. Maybe they're doing it all the time. Maybe they're only wondering why we don't notice that they're calling as a little child whom you mentioned at the beginning of the day picked up a leaf walking across the yard and held it up and looked up at the tree and imagined that it had spent the whole summer up in a branch somewhere there and now was lying on the ground. They don't reason as we do, but maybe they do reason. Do you know? Do you know how things reason? We hardly know how we reason. You know, we really hardly know. Our reasoning is about 10% of our brain power. About 10% we're aware of. Descartes thought he was being ambitious and saying, we think, therefore we are. I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. But our thinking power is only about 10% of the brain. What's the other 90% doing? Including the hippocampus. What's it doing? It's being the brain. It's being us. It's storing memories. It's working away in the unconscious, what we would call now the unconscious. It's carrying our life. It's perhaps the most important carrier of our lives, the unconscious. The things that we know about glimpse in our dreams, if at all. That that is the power of our humanness. And that's where wonder comes, by the way. It doesn't come from the thinking part alone. It comes from that part of the brain, the hippocampus, that sees new things and can say, I'm going to take that new image, that moment, and I'm going to etch it into my memory. If you knew that this was the last day of your life, you might do two things. You might frantically try to cram into your life everything you, that you should have done and didn't do. Or you might just sit down where you are in one place, like a tree, and look in a way you've never looked before, to look at the lines of the branches 
to look at the shape of the leaves hanging, quivering at the end of a branch, to watch the leaves falling, to see the color, to watch the sky darkening, to listen to the birds coming out again, to listen for the last call of the last bird before the last light of the last day. And to rejoice in that, and to be grateful in that, and to be thankful that you were given this day, this opening, this here and now. One last poem, and we'll meditate by one of another of our national treasures, still living, Wendell Berry, a Kentucky poet. Went to New York and made it big in the 1960s as a poet. And New York was the poetry scene and realized he was losing his soul and went back to work a little 40-acre farm in the center of Kentucky in hillbilly country. And has spent his life thinking about the environment and what we're doing to it, the small farm, which has been disappearing, almost gone completely in the United States, as I suspect in the UK, and imagining that we might live in kind of life. This is a poem that's something of a poem that, like Wordsworth's poem, Ruth, that you knew by heart. Many American children would learn this poem growing up. He farmed mostly with horse, with a horse, so pulling his plow behind a horse. And you could say it was a privilege that he could do this because he, he did have a fairly good living as a poet. Pretty rare to say that, and as a writer. But there it is, The Wild Geese. And it's a fall poem. It's a poem for the season of turnings. And you feel a day not unlike, well, let's say tomorrow, which will be Sunday morning. Horseback on Sunday morning harvest over. And you know, if you, if you read this poem, if you've ever harvested as a farmer, some of you, did some of you grow up on farms? Anybody? Till so you were eight, okay. Amazing, because if I'd asked that question a hundred years ago, almost all of you would say, you know, if it was a kind of an average group, many of you would say, yes, I, I grew up on a farm. Yes, I lived on a farm. Horseback, on, and you'd know what it is to be at the end of the harvest the feeling of gratitude, of great relief that all of the work of the whole year has finally been brought into the barn and the last of the corn is cut for the winter cattle and the last of the wheat and the apples have been harvested and it's a time of fullness. Horseback on Sunday morning Harvest over, we taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp, sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. 
abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear, what we need is here. Thank you for a wonderful day. We'll end, I think, Kate, with a time of meditation. Um, and uh, it's been a great gift to be together today. And may we rest in the gift of now until we see each other again.